so much for humor. Back to you, Jack. Yes, well, that was very interesting. Uh, yes, this uh, transmitter and receiver that I have is a Pi MTR1. Uh, it's hybrid. The, uh, everything is transistorized except the the RF part of the transmitter. The four valves in the transmitter, the modulator and receiver, is transistorized, and it does run off a battery. I've got a, a, a battery here that won't start a car, but it's good enough for this, and I'm charging it from a battery charger I made all by myself out of an old radio tranny and a 75-cent rectifier. And I have it on charge here, and it seems to work. It's a bit warm, but it's, otherwise it's all right. And uh, anyway, this MTR one was was put out for the Army. Pine made it in Australia for the Army. The one I have is built in 1966. And it also is one of these things that was meant to be used by idiots. It's got a sort of a minimum of controls on it, and it's being used by an idiot now, actually. But anyway, I've managed to, uh, to get it working quite well. It doesn't do a bad job, really. But uh, uh, the way it's laid out, it wouldn't work too well on, on 15 metres or anything like that. I think the highest band you could probably work on is about 20 metres, but I don't use it on those bands. It, it's all right for this band. It's quite quite good. I didn't pay too much for it. I like that about it. Now, I forgot to mention during the last over, somebody asked me about that law book that I was reading my test transmission from. Well, no, I'm not a lawyer or a law student, but I just happen to have this book here. I have a few law books around because uh, I'm always getting ripped off by people, or people are attempting to, and I like to know something about the law. So I just have a few books. I like to know something about everything, really. And I have a few law books around because uh, I've discovered that when you go to lawyers, it's no good expecting them to know anything about the law. When I, ever I go to a lawyer, they always hand me over to the apprentice, and I usually have to to uh, take a copy of, uh, of a law book or whatever act involved in and point out things to them. You could never rely on them to, to find out for themselves. You have to sort of hold them by the hand sometimes and lead them through the through the book or, or it saves a lot of time and money anyway if you if you know a little bit about it yourself and you can discuss things with them. I don't claim, claim to be about the law as lawyers are but, it's, but it's, you're in a, a rather weak and silly position if you go to a lawyer and you don't know anything about the law that you're dealing with so I always try to find out now somebody said something about how old am I well uh, I remember back in the 60s they used to say things like never trust anybody over 30 and I am over 30 and uh, 110 in the mornings and 15 in the afternoon, 64 at night. No, I'm probably older than you are, and uh, quite a bit older than you are, out externally anyway, but internally I'm, uh, I'm about 24, I think. And uh, I, I won't mention a figure, it'll spoil the illusion, it's happened before. Uh, you won't accept me on the same basis if I actually tell you how old I am. Just say that I'm a fair bit over 30, uh, but I'm also a fair bit under, under 50. I'm sort of in the middle, you know. And uh, I would guess that all you people there are under 25 because you were having a conversation the other night which you'll probably remember about cornflakes and things like that. I actually managed to crack your code and uh, that makes you probably under 25, although you do get some... You could be older, but I think uh, taking that fact into account and uh, the general sort of merriment and the, the sound of your voice, it would all be under 25. There could be somebody there who's maybe 28, but certainly no older than that. And uh, I noticed that you all seem to do a fair bit of listening 
for the broadcast stations. You're all able to say who's playing what on the Melbourne broadcast station and who's uh, a good announcement, who's not, and things like that. Uh, that uh, that's interesting because I didn't think many people listened to broadcast stations. I thought they were all uh, sort of very commercialised and one was much the same as another, but apparently there's a, a section of the population that does listen, does listen to them. I, I suppose they're all right. I listen to them myself sometimes, but the commercial put me off. I hate commercial. I always make make it a point of honour never to buy anything that's advertised on TV if I can possibly avoid it. The only time I ever broke that uh, that rule was when uh, I left my razor home once when I went on a trip and I had to buy one of those those plastic ones that that ballpoint pen company puts out uh, because there was nothing else available. I was in Hobart at 8 o'clock in the morning. That's all I could get. And that has happened there very good. I don't use anything else now. But as a rule, I hate commercials and I don't buy anything like the advertised on TV. Uh, I know, well, noting what you were saying about Graham Kennedy, had an interesting discussion there on Graham Kennedy. I suppose, I don't think there was much TV talent at all in Melbourne because I was watching that, uh, that uh, Logie presentation night the other night and it all seemed a bit sort of tacky to me. They, had, they always get some clapped out Hollywood actor. They had that uh, Lancaster there. But if he doesn't come to Australia until he's about 68, you know, he wouldn't come near the place until then, but he comes out and he presents the Logies, and it was all, all seemed to me to be a pale imitation of what's going on in Hollywood. We're all persons in politics who are trying to be Henry Kissinger, and people have always got a sort of a, a bigger and shinier prototype who's 8,000 miles across the horizon who they try to imitate, and that's how it seemed to me about a lot of the TV personalities that I saw there that night. Uh, but anyway, to give, uh, getting back to Graham Kennedy, I think that uh, uh, Graham's got some redeeming features uh, because he did send up commercials. He had to advertise things in the early days and he made a joke of them. He made fun of it and said, you know, you wouldn't really drink this and things like that. But it became his gimmick. Advertisers used to get him to advertise their, their things in order to have them sent up. But at the time when he first began to send them up, he really meant it. He, he had a sense that, that what he was doing was phony and he tried to, and he also had a sense of humour and he tried to get a bit of fun out of it and it certainly became his gimmick. And another thing about him too, he, uh, he I've seen him, in a, I saw him in Power of That Glory, for example. He had a bit part in Power of That Glory. I don't think uh, from seeing him take that bit part in... Well, he, was, he, he, played, he played a, 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 a sports columnist, that's right, who got beaten up by the, by the John West organisation. But I don't think he... He didn't seem to mind, anyway, when he was playing that small part in Power of That Glory about being upstaged by better actors. There were better actors all around him, and he did seem to take his part for what it was. So I don't think he's as much of an ego tripper as people are inclined to think. And he's not really a bad actor either. He didn't do a bad job uh, uh, acting that piece in Power of That Glory. I think uh, Power of That Glory is one of the very few things I've seen on Australian TV that I thought was very good. Uh, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. I did miss the middle of it. I was away from Melbourne for a few months in the middle of it. It had its weak points, but it wasn't a bad production. I wish we could get a few more like that. On the other hand, you've got things like the Sullivans on the commercial channels, which were uh, sort of billed as a rival to Power Without Glory, but they're just sort of uh, uh, 
television's equivalent of Dad and Dave and Martin's Corner and Soapbox Serial that used to be on in the early days, what they essentially amount to is the reinforcement of people's prejudices. A lot of TV and radio serials and things like that, like, like 96 in the Box and stuff like that, they just are sort of designed to reassure people that whatever dreary kind of life they're living, well, it's all right. They're just reflecting people back to themselves and reinforcing their prejudices and reassuring them that their life is meaningful. Actually, it isn't in a lot of cases. I find those those uh, uh, sort of uh, just-like-us serials and things they put on TV, uh, a bit of a pain in the you-know-what and a bit of a a bit of a bore and power that glory I thought was the one outstanding Australian thing in living memory. Okay, now, uh, I know what you say about the movies. I'm not sure who the movie maker is. I'm not sure who's who there. But I'm very uh, glad to know that you are trying to make real movies and not just pointing the camera at Auntie Mabel's cat or something like that. Uh, I know one or two people who, who are in the movie-making business here, uh, but it's very interesting to, to see that you're there uh, uh, trying to make serious movies. I think that's, uh, that's a very good thing. There, are, there is, uh, uh, well, there are a few people around who used to do those things in the old days who have since made a few real movies. I haven't seen many of them. I don't think they're all terrific, but uh, we've had more, more movies made in Australia in about the last five years than we had made in the previous 50, and I'm all for this, uh, this uh, uh, sort of upsurge of a, of a whole a lot of uh, serious and professional filmmakers, so I, I wish you uh, 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 sort of very good, well, I won't say very good luck, that's a horrible term, I wish you great success with your movie making, and I hope that you... Uh, that you end up making real movies that are commercially successful. Uh, I'd be interested to know uh, what some of the movies are about, if it's, if it's sort of uh, possible to broadcast that kind of thing. Or, you know, I, I, my imagination's running from uh, one extreme to the other. I don't know what might be in them, but if, are they sort of art, arty movies, or could you give me some description of what the scenario is, what's actually in the movie? Uh... Yeah, well, yes, you did give me, you did tell me. I've got it noted down here. It's got something to do with a recent political event. It must be, it must surely be the day that Goff got the gong or something like that because I was out on that day anyway. You might have, I might even appear in your movie. I don't know, but it's just, it's just possible. And okay about date mill being cheaper than 16. Well, I suppose it is, yes. It's, uh, photography's getting very expensive. I take a... Uh, quite a lot of black and white uh, still photographs on a few slides. Just uh, sort of candid camera stuff. I don't hold myself to be a great photographer, although I have taken a few good mo pictures. But I know that uh, costs are going up, and I used to take a, a, a 35 millimeter 36 shot film to to a certain well-known photographic establishment in Collins Street, and they they used to process and print it for five or six dollars and the last time I went in there it was well over eight and it's getting to the point where I'm going to have to do my own again. I've got a tank and things down here and I'll have to do my own. It's just getting getting to be too much like everything else. I really can't afford to have the professionals do it for me so I'll have to do it myself. Actually, I took, a, I took some photos in London 
a few years ago. There was one of a uh, at the, where they were ripping down Covent Garden, and it was a sort of like a, it was like a bomb site because everyone had been turfed out of the shops, and there were whole blocks and streets that were full of sort of. Uh, uh, empty dwellings, empty buildings with the windows and doors bashed in. It looked like a bomb site. Anyway, there was this enormous hole in the ground. Oh, it was about three stories deep, but it was full of mud and water and bulldozers. It was the, it was the hole that was left after they'd pulled down an enormous building. And uh, anyway, I took a photo of that. There was a fence, fence in front, and on the fence it had painted a piece of graffiti. It had, one does not fill the land upon which people walk. Crazy horse, apparently. That's a quotation from the Indian chief. Crazy horse. Anyway, this was this turned out sort of accidentally to be quite a nature of a photograph. So I I I had it blown up into a big post and I've got it on the wall. But of course, it's a little bit out of state because that sort of uh, back to the land conservation stuff fading out. I did try to flog it to uh, to commercial poster makers, but they nothing came of it. And uh, anyway, that's one uh, one little work photography I've got hanging on the wall and, and it was worth doing, I will keep it because I like it very much okay well uh, uh, you know I'm just talking to a piece of plastic here it's not really as live and the same as when you're, when you're having a uh, uh, a conversation where you exchange sentences with people so uh, I'll stop talking now and I'll put it back to uh, to you and uh, and uh, I don't know whether you're still editing your film or not, but the test and that we'd all hang around sort of expectantly till some unsuspecting person plugged it in and it went, and it went bang, you know, and then we'd all, all laugh. Well, that's what we used to do with news ourselves anyway. But uh, anyway, I'm glad there was no, no bangs in your transmitter on that over. It seems to be hanging together. Yes, well, there's a lot of things coming about. BBC, uh, ABC TV being better. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, uh, I agree that it's better than most of the commercial stuff, but we get a lot of shows on it from England which are sort of slanted to reinforcement to the English person that his way of life is meaningful. We get things like Alf Garnet, which is reassuring to a very large section of the English population that the English working class uh, may be ignorant, but And then we get the similar thing in that George and Mildred program, and we got the same thing in Man About the House. Man About the House was telling all the sort of office workers who uh, can't make ends meet, who get hardly any wages, that don't solve their problems, and live squeezed together, uh, uh, six sharing a little flat. That, that uh, to share a little flat with six other people and have no money uh, and have a landlord on your back, well, it really is quite fun. That's what that's designed for. Then we get uh, other things like those English police serials. They're a sort of an English Walter Mitty thing. That's to tell the the, uh, the English bank clerk who doesn't have any adventures in his life that uh, it allows him to have a sort of a daydream that he's tough and he beats people up and uh, solves crimes and uh, and uh, makes flying tackles and runs around screeching tyres in his car. That's a sort of a Walter Mitty daydream for the for the Englishman in the humdrum job. But but uh, they just get chipped out here whole as bolus. They really don't quite apply to us, but we are. What's going on? Where's the program gone? 
Hello, hello, control room. Yes, well now, I can remember, somebody was saying there ought to be a TV station. Well, I can remember in, uh, I was on a ship once in, I think it was Houston, Texas or somewhere like that, and they had such a station there. In some American cities they do have such a station. It's usually on a UHF channel where, where the reception isn't as good as it is on the VHF channels, and it's usually uh, run by a foundation, like you say, and in that, in that case it was run by one of the local universities, and it was one of these things where anyone could come in and have a say, and you used to get all sorts of cranky people on it having their say, like the sort of the, uh, factions of the lesbians movement, and you used to get sort of the black power revolutionaries and people like that all coming in having their say. Some of them seem to be a little bit crazy to me, but anyway, they let them all have a go. Actually, it's not a bad idea, I suppose, but but it probably wouldn't work in Melbourne because we can't get... They can't get a full-based program on 3CR, which is just broadcasting and relatively simple. Well, then they could never get it together to get even four or five hours uh, of TV, it's, hard, it's hardly worth uh, uh, having a sort of a 3CR and looking at the announcer's head and shoulders. You can leave out the head and shoulders, it really won't make much difference. Uh, I agree with what you say about uh, it's a bad thing that a lot of these sort of flying clubs and chess clubs and hiking clubs haven't got programs on 3CR, but I think there's a sort of a lot of political trendies have got hold of 3CR. I remember the very first night I listened to 3CR, some youth came on and said, tonight is, today is American Independence Day. He said that in a real locker accent. And what he said in effect was, it's, a, it's American Independence Day, but we're not having anything to do with them Americans, and we're only going to have Australian programs on this station. And then he proceeded to to drag out everything Australian he could find and he'd had Peter Dawson singing some chauvinistic old song about the empire is best and then they had uh, I was Fisherman of England or something uh, it was sung by an Australian that didn't matter to this sort of trendy that the, the lyrics of the song were very sort of chauvinistic and it was down at all other nations uh, we, are, we are the greatest <coughs> and then he had Leonard Teal reciting some Henry Lawson poem or something like that, forgetting that if you look at all of Henry Lawson's poems, well, Henry Lawson was a sort of an imitation of uh, Kipling in some ways. He sort of modelled himself on Kipling. Some of his poems are all right. But when I remember uh, during the First World War, Henry Lawson wrote some very sort of patriotic poems about down with the, the barbarian Huns and, uh, and uh, up with England. And he also was... Uh, uh, had, he also wrote some rather racist poems, sort of anti-Chinese poems about about uh, sort of kill the uh, built the yellow Asian hordes over the head and don't let them in here. Uh, <clears throat> so those people who uh, who who sort of claim to be ultra patriotic and uh, an Australian nationalist uh, forget some of those things in in their sort of rush to grab anything Australian. Unfortunately, there isn't a very wide choice of what to grab anyway. I wrote to the station when they said uh, they, when they said uh, uh, we're not going to have anything American. We're everything. We're, we're for Australian independence, and we're only going to have Australian things. And I wrote and said, uh, look, you wouldn't even be broadcasting if it was, uh, and playing records if it hadn't been for the Americans, Edison and De Forest. You know, surely you must be able to find something good in the American uh, in, the, in American history and American life which you can broadcast. You know, I don't expect you to find 
everything in the sort of wide panorama of American history to be to your taste, but there must be some things which you can which you can highlight, which are. Anyway, I never got a reply to it. I don't know what happened. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that three CR has fallen into the hands of some rather narrow-minded, trendy groups, in my opinion, because they have such programs about how wonderful life is in Albania. It runs for about eight hours a week. Well, I don't think life in Albania is wonderful, and it fails to say about it in one one-hour program, but this one goes on and on and on. Now, when you have uh, sort of groups like that dominating a thing, well, and they reinforce each other. One, says, one tells the other, 
something and then the other somebody else tells him the same thing. In other words, wherever you go, you hear the same opinions expressed from the same people and then after a while there's sort of a judgment agreement made and they accept your opinion and there's a reinforcement goes on and because you go around meeting all these people and they keep on reiterating the same thing and they keep on reinforcing some pet opinion that you've got, it then sort of uh, uh, ends up being accepted as the truth and the sort of a... Uh, you know, the truth like Genesis, that's how the world is. But what happened to me was I, well, I got into my, I used to be a school teacher at a technical school, but one year I happened to save some money. I just, I didn't know how it happened, but I had some money, so I got out of the country and uh, I went to I went to England in the first place. And then uh, I found life was, a, I, I thought before I went, that uh, it's no use leaving Australia because the rest of the world is exactly the same and only worse because at least you can make some money in Australia and then the rest of the world you can't. Otherwise, life is the same. And I had sort of the uh, uh, idea that, that life in England was all slums and things like that, which it is. But the thing that, that really changed me from being in England was the enormous variety of people that I met. Instead of going around in the same group with the same background who kept on saying things to you like, what school did you go to? That used to be the big put-down. What school did you go to? I used to say I went to Swinburne Tech, which I did. But anyway, that all ceased. And when I got over there, I kept on meeting all sorts of foreign people. I used to meet people who, who had lived in entirely different backgrounds and had entirely different ideas. And you couldn't say to some sort of big West Indian, what school did you go to? It was just uh, out of the question. You know, I used to meet people from all over the place, and there's a continuous stream of foreign people coming through. You'd be there one year, and there'd be, uh, you'd meet a whole lot of people from all over, Spanish people, Arabs, people from South America, people here, people from there, all sorts of different attitudes and ideas, and then they'd all move on, and another lot would come through, and you kept on, the variety of people that you met, and the variety of ideas you got flung at you, was sort of uh, very wide and and uh, without sort of limits and and it changed me a lot when I came back here I sort of saw that the place was a lot smaller than I thought it was and I really don't think uh, uh, that I could really live here permanently now uh, one of the things I notice about living in Australia is people know everything out of a book or a newspaper they're always saying I read an article about this that and the other thing and they all know what going on and uh, we're always looking to this we've all got a big Jesus who's 8,000 miles over the horizon people are modelling themselves on things that are going on in Europe they're modelling themselves on some trend in Europe or they're modelling themselves on some trend in America and you get people here who are always saying I am the real interpreter and representative of Mozart or French culture or good food and wine or Kung Fu or meditation or whatever you like, whatever's going on overseas, uh, it, there's always somebody who reads about it in a book or a magazine and then sort of imitates it, but there's not much really uh, sort of indigenous uh, sort of, I don't know what, the, what they're called, there's not much sort of indigenous way of life going on. Our whole way of life is copied from somebody else because we're sort of a European community a long, long way from other European communities and we're all trying to uh, uh, to keep up with what they're allegedly doing, which we get through the press, which, which uh, probably manipulates us a little bit, the commercial reason.
well that encourages this uh, this desire to imitate what uh, somebody in another part of the world is doing. Whether well, well, it was the German army that came tramping through. It wasn't the Germans. It was the Swedes, and if it wasn't the Swedes, it was the Mongols or something like that. And it, people people uh, molded people's attitudes because people knew that that life could be short or uh, or whatever you had wasn't going to last. So uh, life became important, and they they learned to appreciate what really meant something in life and what didn't, and it's changed their whole attitude. So, for example, when we see a movie about about what happened in the terrible war, like the Sullivans or something like that, uh, well, it's all full of sort of tinsely heroics, and uh, it's all rather shallow and, uh, and uh, uh, isn't it exciting, and weren't our boys wonderful, that kind of thing. But when you see a film that was made in a country like Poland about the war, well, it's much sort of deeper and... Uh, and mature. I don't know what, how to describe it, but you'll know what I mean. The people there uh, uh, really know what matters in life and what doesn't matter in life. And people here don't know uh, reality from illusion. I think that's got something to do with it. Uh, I am raving on, aren't I? Now, what else do I want to say? Anyway, advice to young men. My advice to young men is, while you may be having a good time now, and you've got a lot of interesting friends around you, and enjoy it if you can, but don't repeat the same experience too much. Where you'll find that living in Melbourne, uh, up to a certain point, you'll be having new experiences, but after a while, you'll find yourself repeating the same experience again and again and again because of the limited number of things that it's possible to do living in a place like Melbourne. So, therefore, after you've repeated it a couple of times, it's beginning to bore you a little bit. Well, it's like when you eat. They say when you eat, get up and leave the table while you're still hungry. Well, when you get to the point where you find yourself doing the same thing over and over again, that'll come when you're about 26 or 27. And if you can, uh, get up off your uh, seat and try to get overseas and travel a little bit uh, because it's important to know what the rest of the world like. For example, I used to find... People in Australia used to read it. I used to know people in Australia, and they, and they everything you about the outside world comes to you as a photograph in a newspaper or something like that. So you see, you, you see a photograph of a, a famine in uh, in Upper Patagonia or something like that, and you say, look at those stupid Upper Patagonians starving to death. Uh, it must only be because they're stupid men efficient, and we marvellous efficient Australians, if we were there, well, wouldn't it be different? But people in Australia don't realise. But here we have 13 million people who are living on a whole continent, it's a rich continent in agriculture and minerals, so uh, it, can be, it can be about 10% efficient and it can still provide enough goods and food and money for us to have a fairly good standard of life. And uh, we are really, uh, uh, we haven't got ourselves to thank for our prosperity. We've got the ingenuity of people like the Japanese to thank because if it wasn't for the Japanese being so clever as to make cars and transistor radios and stuff like that, then they wouldn't need our raw materials, so we wouldn't be as prosperous as we are. So 
But when you get overseas, you find that people in other countries are in entirely different situations. You get 50 million people who are living on a, a little piece of land uh, and they can't uh, carry out enough agriculture to support themselves. And it has, it's not particularly rich in, in minerals or something like that. So they've got to turn to other things to make ends meet. So they get very good at making something or other which they export and uh, they may not live to our standard of living but still they're pretty smart to live as well as they do but uh, you get a lot of people you meet a lot of people who who annoy you when you're traveling who who compare the standard of living they say oh it's not the same as it's at home look because they don't live their houses aren't as good and this isn't as good and that isn't as good they haven't got they haven't got an up-to-date car and uh, they haven't got a swimming pool in their backyard but the people that they're talking about frequently have a quality that we don't have any of it and i don't know what to call it but i suppose suppose you call it uh, soul or joyful living or something like that. There are certain people in the world, uh, the Latin people, for, for example, the Spanish people, some people in Asia, the Thais and people like that, who have got a quality called sort of soul and they've got a, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, it's not exactly, it's, sort of, it's not really religious, but they've got a, a sort of an awareness uh, of 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 the of nature of of the world or the world that they're in, and uh, they've got a sort of a they've sort of struck a balance with it. They're not uh, busy ripping everything apart and ripping up every rock and tearing down every tree because they can turn it into cornflakes or something and make money with it, or they can turn it into into uh, uh, some plastic esky or something and sell it and advertise it on TV. They seem to have a uh, uh, a better rapport with. With, uh, with nature or with the world or with life. I don't know how to describe it, but anyway, they've got quality that we don't find here. So my advice, you know, here I am, I'm an old man giving advice to young men, but about the getting married bit, well now, that's where you're going to fall into a trap. Don't do it uh, too soon, because if you get married to some uh, sort of uh, uh, middle-class Australian girl, well, you'll pay fairly dearly for it because they're very demanding. You have to have a better house than the Joneses next door and you have to have a, a Volvo and uh, you have to have this that, and that. They're pushing you and pushing you and pushing you to get all these status symbols which really aren't necessary. And then you're sort of nailed down by one foot. You'll never get away and you don't know what you're missing in the outside world. There's all sorts of beautiful things in the outside world. And in, in time will fly by and you'll find yourself chained to some old boiler who is unrecognisable. That's what I see when I look at my friends that I knew when I was 20. I used to look at this one and that one and the other one and, and I sort of thought they were doing better than I was and they probably were materially. But uh, when I see them today and they're, uh, and they're sort of grey in the face from paying off their house and they've got a demanding, possess possessive and nagging wife who's no longer beautiful and things like that and they've got delinquent kids, I don't envy them a bit. I think the only people that I know that have sort of successfully married in Melbourne are fairly well-to-do people, people who have whether both the husband and wife have a profession there's plenty of money coming in and they can send their kids to university and they can give them everything they want and it's not too much of a hassle and a struggle. I think it would be terrible to be married and bring and spend your whole life bringing up kids and then have them 
have them unhappy or half educated or something wrong like that or can't get a job or or uh, sort of uh, bored out of their minds and uh, and going around vandalising telephone boxes. You know, I, think it's really, in other words, I think it's really hard to be happy living the, the great Australian life. I, I think it's sort of going to... With most people, it doesn't really make them happy. I, I may be wrong about that, but that's what I think. Now, uh, after that lecture, what next? Uh, yeah, well, now, I'll tell you about life in, sort of wonderful life in Melbourne. I know a lot of people up around the Dandenongs who went up there because they said, well, uh, it's a sort of a picturesque area to live in, so they bought houses up there when they were cheap. But they're all bought out of their minds. They don't know what to do. They get in their little houses separated on bush blocks, separated by trees, if we know. And they don't know what to do. They're all bored, and then the, the, the couples fight, husband and wife fight because there's nothing else to do, and fighting's exciting. And then they break up. Everybody I know up that way who was married, their marriages have broken up just through sheer boredom. And you get all sorts of little uh, groups going out there, like Buddhist societies and yoga clubs and things like that, which are really sort of rather transparent excuses for people to socialise. I don't, well, I don't condemn them for that, but the people, that sort of, people who live in those suburbs are very desperate for something to do and for contact and it's not a very nice way to live I, I don't know how I'm going to end up but uh, I remember seeing some people in some parts of the world I used to go to a little banana port once in Costa Rica it was very sort of isolated and there was an American there, he was about 15, he had one leg, he got one leg shot off in the terrible war, but as a result of losing this leg, they gave him a pension, and with this pension, he was able to go and live in this little town, and uh, he had a hippie colony there, and it was very famous, and you could go and visit him, and he had a whole lot of young American hippies there, and he was sort of king hippie of them all, and they all, all there were kids all over the place, and they had a boat, and they used to live on the, on the other side of the bay, and you used to see them in their boat, and it was run by a, a sort of a a contrived car engine and a sort of a Heath Robinson propeller and they were sort of notables of this town and I thought that was a sort of a, a great kind of a life but you need the pension to do it they won't let you go and live in these countries unless you've got the pension so I've got to hurry up and uh, and win the lottery and invest it and get a pension and then go and live in one of those places where everything's peaceful and tranquil and nobody's trying to run you down on Saturday night and he's 1968 whole van because he's drunk or frustrated or didn't have a very good night. Anyway, I'm raving on, so uh, I'll put it back to you to see whether I've put you all to sleep or not, and I'll be interested uh, to hear what you've got to say. I don't know who's there. I, perhaps, perhaps some people couldn't stand it and walked out in the middle of this uh, this over. Yes, well now, uh, I've got a lot of notes. Uh, On the Poland question, I'm not pushing uh, a sort of a comparison between material life in Poland and material life in America. I couldn't agree with you more that material conditions in Poland are terrible and material conditions in America are very good. I've been in both countries, but I only name Poland as a country because it happens to be the country that's in between Germany and Russia and it happens to be the first country that gets trampled over whenever a war breaks out. I could just as easily name France or parts of France or Belgium or whatever but there are certain countries in Europe where the people know that there's always the possibility there's going to be a war so they do their best to enjoy life while they can and uh 
they have a deeper sense of of uh, enjoying what they've got while they've got it because they know from recent experience that it may soon all be destroyed and taken away from them. They may have their farmhouse or they may be in their cafe or they may be dancing or listening to music or drinking some wine. Now they know that next year or the year after they may be pushing a barrow along a road as refugees and this gives them a greater appreciation of the things they've got while they've got them and I'm only I'm putting this up as a, a phenomenon or a thing that happens in countries where there are frequent wars which applies to a lot of the countries of Europe. It's got nothing to do with with East and West or Poland, the way of life in Poland being better than the way of life in some other country. I'm just thinking of Poland as being the prime example of a country that's been devastated by war pretty frequently. You've got... Uh, I, I, went, I went once to a Polish port on a Greek ship to load sugar, and it was the port of Danzig, and everything had been flattened in the war, and they had pictures of... Uh, uh, what the city looked like after the war. There was hardly a brick standing and they carefully tried to cons reconstruct what they could reconstruct in the old style and so on. But, uh, you know, they, they, they had things all around them to remind them that uh, they'd been destroyed recently, they could be destroyed again. The same applies to villages in France and, uh, and Germany and a lot of European countries. It just gives the people a greater sense of what's important in life and what's not important, or in my opinion, whereas we in Australia... Uh, have always seen, uh, we haven't been actually in the, in the armed forces, we've seen the war on newsreels, we haven't had, we haven't had the invading enemy uh, living in our houses or walking in our streets. It's not our fault that we didn't, but we lack this experience that people in some European countries have had, and this makes a difference in our thinking. That's what I'm trying to say, but I'm not trying to say that life in Poland is better than life in some other place somewhere else. But what I'm saying is, that historical experience in Poland and whatever other European country that has experienced an invader and has experienced war has changed the thinking of the people and we being a European community a long way from Europe have not yet had that experience and uh, a good thing that we haven't but, but it, I'm just trying to explain a difference in attitudes between people in Australia and people who live in European countries where there have been wars uh, now, we live a, a life in Australia where, as Tony, I think it was, says everyone lives in their little brick house as a unit and they don't very often talk to each other. They sit and watch TV. There's a central office which is communicating sort of radially with everybody in their little houses, but there's no communication, or not very much communication from house to house. But in some other countries uh, where the standard of living is not so good, and where uh, people may live in a small apartment, uh, well, they go out into a sort of a public parlour. They can't, uh, you know, because of their material conditions are worse, uh, they have to seek their entertainment elsewhere. And as a result, you find all sorts of cafes and coffee houses and things like that that are going all night till 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, the people come out and they meet each other in these places. They don't have to, but they do. And there's, a, there's always a hustle and a bustle going on. You can be walking around at 3 o'clock in the morning and the streets are crowded with people. I think uh, Barcelona's a place like that, that I can remember. 
but anyway, I just personally prefer that kind of life. Some people mightn't. Uh, I, I, I'm not uh, saying that other people don't get happiness out of a different style of life. I'm putting forward a personal point of view, and it's a style of life uh, that I prefer, which I wish to go back to. Uh, I find life... Uh, life, sort of home life in Melbourne to be pretty boring, but I'm not saying that because I find it to be boring, then the other two and a half million people, people in Melbourne are also obliged to find it, so that's just how I find it, and uh, I, did, I did find life more fulfilling uh, on the other side of the world, and I think I will go back there, certainly life here is much better materially i couldn't i couldn't knock that at all life is better materially and you do get people coming from the poorer european countries to seek material uh, sort of increase in material standard of living here but but they also lose something for it they lose uh, sort of a, a when you travel travel out of your own country where you speak the language and you know the ropes and you know the way around you know how people think and you go to another country where you don't speak the language well then you're at a big disadvantage it takes you a long long time to get fluent at it and to get to know the way that people think and to get accepted so while they do come here to increase their material standard of living they're also giving up something they're losing something uh, at the same time people say to me oh uh, all these people who come here uh, should learn english and they shouldn't stick in their little groups and they shouldn't speak their own language but you can't do that i found uh, when i was traveling in foreign countries that that it sort of drives you mad if you spend three months in a place and you can't speak the language and you have a lot of little difficulties and hassles every day that really you find you find yourself going quite cuckoo and doing things that you wouldn't dream to it makes you very irritable and very sort of uh uncomfortable and I know very much how people people who come here feel and I like the idea that when when foreign people come here to uh, uh, increase their, their material standard of living that they bring some of their background with them I like the idea that there are people speaking foreign languages and people living in foreign communities I used to like to go when when it existed to uh, the block in Melbourne where the Greek cafes are and, and eat Greek food and drink Greek coffee and I'm very glad that those people have come here here and brought those things with them and maybe may there be more of them and uh, I'm not sort of in favour of, uh, of forcing them to become instant football fans or anything like that. I prefer to leave them to be themselves and to enjoy the difference that they bring. Now, your other question on the TV programs, yes, I was saying that TV programs are designed uh, slanted at certain groups of people in the community. Now, I don't think it's a, a diabolical plot. I think it's just a clever uh, marketing on the part of people who make TV programs. People make TV programs in order to sell them, and they've discovered that people like seeing themselves reflected and their way of life reflected, and they find that that's what people want, and that's what people like, so they produce it. Uh, but but uh, what was odd about it was seeing a such a program that's produced for a certain group in England show it in Australia because that that particular group may be absent from the Australian scene. So we're getting a, a TV series aimed for a group in England, brought out here, and there's nobody really to aim it at. It's a sort of a curiosity. Okay, well I won't uh, uh, spout on too long. And so on whether. Whether uh, it's a perfect world or whether it isn't, uh, if you like it, you like it. I suppose that's okay. If you're looking for something more, well, it's there to be found. Uh, 
I don't think I ever said the English comedy had no right to be here. I'm interested to see any comedy from anywhere, and I'll try to laugh at it. All I said was that, uh, for example, in Man About the House, that is aimed at the English people who live six to a flat, which they do, young office workers and people like that, who on low wages who can't afford to pay, individually pay their rent for a flat, get a flat together, and they live in it just like they're doing Man About the House, and that's what that film was aimed at, and what I'm saying is we don't have any people in that situation here, because being more affluent, people are able to individually rent flats and we don't find too many people living six or eight to a flat like you do in London but they've said the comedy had no right to be here it's got every right to be here but it's a uh, it reflects uh, an aspect of life that we don't have here but we still understand it uh, well other ways of life uh, the only one, other one I one other one I can think of is the way of life in places like Samoa where the young people uh, enjoy themselves, they have children, and the old women look after the children. And when the young women get to be old women, well, they look after the children, and their children go around enjoying themselves. Now, that's really not a bad system. It's a community system, and it frees the young people uh, to both uh, uh, have to bear children and not be tied down to enjoy themselves while they can. And it also gives the, the grandmothers something to do, and uh, it gives the child a wider experience because he's either in the hands of grandmother or his natural parents or somebody else. They do have a, they have a uh, uh, an alternative to the nuclear family in place like Samoa. That's one place that I can think of where they did have a different system that seemed, in some ways, to uh, have some advantages on ours. Uh, what else have I got here? Uh, I think also the, the nuclear family, if we're going to keep on talking about nuclear families, is in some way a product of private property. You get hold of something and uh, you say this belongs to us and the us becomes fewer and fewer and fewer. Well, I suppose we've got to uh, accept that in uh, a sort of a rich society where there is the possibility for uh, the facilities to be duplicated for small groups where in other societies uh, they have to be shared by a larger group, so you get a, you get a way of life that's adapted to the conditions anyway. Uh, what else have I got down here? Uh, anyway, all, all, all I was saying was that experience has taught me that uh, there are some different ways of life to the materialistic way which also seem to work in their way, although the materialistic way of life is being exported to all countries. It's hard to find a place where there isn't a Coca-Cola on sale and things like that, but there are still some little little uh, uh, corners in the world where people live a different way of life and seem to do it happily. Um... Oh, yes, about cars. Now, you were saying, Kevin, that... A man can be happy with his car and his ham radio. Uh, well, that's where I happen to disagree with you because I hate cars. I wish I could get away from them. Uh, I don't like, for example, uh, the aggressive attitude that people have in their cars. People take out their frustrations in cars. When you're driving your car along, uh, somebody cuts you off or does something which you think they shouldn't have done. Well, 
the person in the car seems to be ten times more aggressive than the same person outside the car, and they shout insults at each other and make threatening gestures, and you're walking along the street and you get a carload of gilded youths come along and they stick their heads out the window and they yell something at you or they throw a beer can at you or something and then go speeding on, and uh, people sort of... Uh, drive very quickly. People take out their frustrations and their aggressions in cars, and that's an aspect of cars that I've come to dislike. I was down the street to get a hamburger a couple of hours ago, and it was uh, there were people, young people, uh, screaming up and down, screeching their tyres, mainly because they have nothing to do. It's a way of taking out your frustrations on other people to have a car, but I, I find them a menace. I'm not going to... Uh, to uh, say you've got to get rid of your car or anything like that, but I just don't like I, like I would like to get away from heavy traffic if I could. I know that's an, the impossible dream. Uh, I'm not likely to get away from them, from them but uh, uh, I, I would like to the day when, when cars are railway engineered so they last for 20 years and uh, they cost, no, cost $15,000 each. I think we could do with fewer of them. They're really a sort of a toy in a lot of cases. Uh, they're not not just used used entirely for, for transport, for getting your made to be. They're a sort of a fun thing, but they're a dangerous kind of a fun thing. Another thing that scares me about cars is well, I don't want to end up a paraplegic out of some stupid incident. I hate driving in other people's cars. I, some, I prefer it bad than all of the public transport is. I use it. I consciously avoid having a car because uh, it scares me that I'm going to be in one of those horrible accidents at a, at a, at a crossing at 3 o'clock in the morning which happen because somebody's drunk or something like that and I'm going to end up uh, in the wheelchair Olympics, you know, sitting in a wheelchair firing rubber darts at a, a target with a bow and arrow. I don't fancy uh, doing that for the rest of my life. I'm very careful about cars for that reason. I don't like the, the traffic accidents and the things that they bring. Cars I've got grave reservations about. Uh, yeah, well, I'm sorry if I sounded... Uh, be making judgments a couple of uh, a couple of overs ago. We've all got our ideas on uh, on uh, various things. Yours appear to be fairly strong on uh, on what you find uh, to suit you in uh, in living and what's good in life and what's not. And uh, I have strong ones too. They may not coincide, but uh, but I do have them. Um, Yeah, that's another thing about uh, about uh, Australian way of life that uh, that turns me off a little bit. I'm sorry to be knocking Australian way of life again, Kevin, but there are some aspects of it which require criticising. One is the idea that unorthodox people must be jumped on. There's a sort of a uh, an authoritarian uh, mood in the air that unorthodox people must be. Uh, severely dealt with. I'll give you the example of the Cedar Bay hippie commune up there north of Kent. If there's a lot of hippies in the bush minding their own business and doing whatever they're doing and doing nobody any harm and then the the, uh, the wallopers come along with helicopters and navy and everything, although it's a sort of uh, uh, second D-Day invasion, and jump on these people and uh, hammer them severely and treat them as uh, as uh, sort of criminals. I think that's very bad. There's no, there's not much toleration of uh, of different and unorthodox people here. Uh, there are other places where we have got much toleration either. There are some parts of America 
uh, I think where, where there's not much toleration in some parts, uh, where there's a lot, I think, when the Salt Lake City area people are fairly rigid in their views. Uh, they are in, in a lot of countries, but anyway, wherever it happens, uh, it's not so, I, I don't think it's so good. I prefer, I prefer to have different types of people, different kinds of people around to be a little bit more tolerant, at least to harmless people. Uh, but I don't think the people that I gave in that example at Cedar Bay were doing anybody any harm. Whatever it was they were doing, they made sure that they got well away from civilization so they'd give offence to nobody else. And uh, it really upsets me that that uh, they, are, they are treated like that just because they're different. They were. I don't think they were doing anything that was terribly harmful. They were just being different, and so they got hammered. Anyway, I've probably thrown enough fuel on the fire to uh, to cause a blaze. And Mark, Mark and Tony, and uh, and they can pacify and cure the situation. Throw a bit of oil on the waters, and then we'll see what happens. I'm going to agree with you on something. I couldn't agree more with what you say about that applied cunning, uh, winning winning more reward than applied effort. I'm afraid that true. Cunning takes the reward from the maker of the effort in many, many cases. We see that around us all the time, so I have to agree with you on that point. Uh, now, let's have a look at these notes. Yes, now, somebody was saying right back early in the over that psychology is misused and uh, misapplied, but that applies to practically anything at all. So is technology. Whatever technology you happen to be involved in, probably electronics or something like that, the fact that you can control electronic machines doesn't give you power. All that happens is that somebody will buy your skill to control a machine the way they want it controlled. So uh, uh, if you have gone to the university for four years and become a, an electronic engineer or something like that, well, all that we, well, one of the things we can expect to happen is that you'll bring us bigger and better commercials. We used to have to watch crunchy munchies being crunched and munched in black and white, and now Thanks to all you university-trained technologists, we can see it in colour. Uh, so no matter what skill you've got, you have to market it, and it's the guy with the money who buys it, buys it and directs what will be done with it. So you really haven't got much control uh, over whether your technology or your psychology is used for good or evil. People may buy your, buy your uh, time to invent machines to uh, zap millions of people with, or they may buy it for... Uh, to make heart paces or whatever you like, but you you haven't really got a lot of control over it. You can, you can stop working one and work for the other, but as a pool of technologists, you're just being being bought and sold like like any other horse on the on the market. Uh, yeah. Now I didn't see that film about goofy drivers, but uh, I would have liked to have seen it. But I see them on the road every day. Uh, they still scare me. Uh, I hate being a pedestrian. I always always think tonight's the night I'm going to get run over. But it hasn't happened yet. Uh, thank God. Now, uh, yeah, you were saying, Mark, that you have this sort of bad feeling. I don't know whether it's the one that I was talking about earlier, but you do get that kind of a... Uh, well, you can get that kind of a feeling, I think. Uh, well, here I go again as I'm playing knock-knock again. But you can get... Uh, there is, if you find a sort of dis dissatisfaction in the society that you're living in at present, then... Make about two searches around, and if it doesn't doesn't work, well then uh, go to some other place. Anyway, I, I broke a sort of a uh, 
a situation like that by 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 leaving the country and doing a bit of travelling. When when it gets like that, uh, there's there's often no solution. You're often often on a circular path which you can't get out of, and the only way to break it is to break completely for a while with the environment that you're in and go to a new one because when you get into a new environment it's a very absorbing in the beginning because you're spending about three months finding things out finding out how it works and uh, uh, how the, how the how the society works and what people believe in it and what the, what goes on and it, it can take you out of stuff and make life very interesting so I recommend if it's possible uh, commencement of travel if you don't get rid of that persistent feeling but anyway other people wouldn't but I do uh, well now it's a peculiar thing in the world that, that no matter where you go no matter where it is the people always say this is the best place on earth no matter, no matter whether, whether it's the most miserable or the most palatial place if the people were born there then it's always the best place on earth as a matter of fact that's what seems to sell a lot of magazines if you look at for example at the Australasian Post well the Australasian Post has nothing in it except about uh, uh, isn't it great to live in Australia it's that reinforcement thing again in every country you go to it's the same if you buy the Sunday Times in England and you read the Sunday Times magazine well it'll have some story about how wonderful the British Empire was or how wonderful life was in England. That's really what sells, sells newspapers. People, it's, it's the reassurance that uh, whatever you're doing is indeed the right thing to be doing. And I don't want to sort of drift into knocking, but, but uh, you know, people really, really do defend their little piece of territory. It's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to, to talk to people quite frequently. Uh, about about their own little uh, lo local environment. Every man every man is uh, is sort of standing up for his own thing. That's one of the uh, that's one of the, one of the things I think that needs breaking down. I think people need to to uh, uh, look at the other bloke's situation, even if he's a foreign bloke, and uh, and try to understand that it's got some virtues in it too. Uh, now about indoctrination and stuff like that. Sometimes I listen to this. Uh, station of the University of New South Wales VL2UV where I hear university lectures and some of them quite frequently seem to me to be a sort of a, um, a formalisation of the obvious. There was a guy on the other night talking about the way people say things, the inflection in people's voices and what the various inflections with illustrations indicate. It's a sort of an overtone in language. The word as it said, uh, the meaning of the word as it said can be changed uh, by the way that it's pronounced or the way that it's said. Now, I knew all about this from the experience of talking to people. I was well aware of all the things he was saying. And so he collected a lot of sort of what, to me, were obvious facts of life together and turned them into a lecture. I was, it made me think that, uh, that uh, uh, at least some university courses uh, must be pretty dull and ha also have a, uh, uh, a sort of a moulding effect on the mind. I think uh, it, there are some university courses, particularly in art, which are purported to broaden the mind, but actually they shape it and, uh, and make it uh, the right shape to fit in a certain size pre-prepared box. I think there's a bit of that goes on. Um, it's getting pretty late. It's 20 to 25 to 4 or something like that. Uh, I'm prepared to go on talking for a while longer, but sooner or later I'll have to go to bed. Uh, 
But anyway, oh yeah, somebody's been reading a Maxim Gorky novel. I take it that that, uh, that childhood experience you were talking about where where everybody lived in the one house and the people kept on coming and going. Uh, you're referring to Maxim Gorky. I seem to remember I read that book. It's childhood, I think it was called. Uh, well, I'm probably... I, I, I'm acutely aware that the quality of what I'm saying is sort of rapidly deteriorating. I'm getting tired and I'm sort of running out of steam and I know that I'm rambling, so... Uh, I'll let you have a go, Randy. Okay, Colonel, uh, just one little thing about this patriotism, the same as nationalism. Uh, I think it is because that the patriot bit comes from Greek and the, uh, the, the national bit comes from Latin, but they both mean the same thing. It's just two words, two English words uh, that have come from Greek and Latin and they're parallel and equal, I think, so I think it does mean the same thing. And, uh, yes, it has been quite an interesting comment, but one does... Uh, sort of talk uh, ad lib and uh, ramble a bit and perhaps not get all the ideas into the lucid and concise form one would like to express them in. I think you're pretty good at, uh, at uh, assembling your thoughts like that, Tony. You seem to say what you have to say fairly clear. I don't think I always do. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I'll lie in bed and I'll think about it and I'll probably come up with some fresh slants on things by about this time tomorrow night if anyone's on. And uh, I'm sorry I've given anyone the impression that I'm... I'm knocking. I like to. Uh, so a bit of an iconic. Unfortunately, at this point, both stations were doubling. Take the cows and turn them upside down and round and examine them. And I like to uh, to uh, uh, throw a few ideas around. And uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of made like that. I, I like to analyse things and take things apart. And uh, I hope I haven't offended anyone by knocking. Anyway, I'll be coming down with knock knock on the band. I'll have to say, you have to say knock knock. Who's there? VK3, VK3. Who? And so uh, anyway, I'm all for a sort of open discussion. I like nothing to be sacred. I like to discuss everything and anything within reason. I'm not going to uh, to make uh, it too hot, but I do like it. I do like to discuss it. I do like to put ideas forward and get other people's people's reactions, even if they don't agree. But uh, I don't sort of believe that anything is so holy that it's sort of above discussion. Uh, so anyway, I hope that you're on tomorrow night. I'd like to have another discussion tomorrow night if anyone's uh, in the mood. So I'll say good night to everybody here at night. Good night, people. Uh, where I'm at now. But what I was saying is that uh, uh, I like to discuss everything. I, I don't think that, that, uh, that there's anything that's beyond discussion or beyond criticism, not even, not even our national pride or our way of life. Uh, I think that, uh, that discussion can only improve it, and uh, I really don't think it's perfect. It's all right, but it's not perfect. And uh, that's an opinion I'm going to stick to. And so I'll, prob I'll probably be on again tomorrow night saying similar things. So you better come back again tomorrow night, Alan, and uh, defend Australia's honour. And uh, I'll take the, the devil's role and uh, I'll knock it a bit more. Anyway, it's been most interesting uh, talking to everybody. And uh, I hope we're, we're all on again tomorrow night and we can continue with another discussion, but I know that I'm going to feel terrible by about 11 o'clock tomorrow morning.
and uh, but I'll still come at it again tomorrow night, even if I do. So thank you for the conversation, everybody. Interesting subject, but if you get sort of highly technically qualified, well, it ties you to places where there's that kind of industry. It, it means you've got to stay in places where there's an electronic industry or a large population and broadcasting stations and things like that so that you can get a job. But uh, I've now discovered that if I, was, if I was starting it all over again, the thing that I would take up would be installer of crossbar telephone exchanges because I've discovered that persons who can install telephone exchanges are in great demand in sort of exotic places in the world. I've met people, people in Brazil and Costa Rica and places like that, foreign people, Frenchmen and Australians and Germans and people like that, who were wandering around those places and getting plenty of work because they just happened to be installing a lot of telephone exchanges in those places and technicians who can do the job are in great demand. So I always kicked myself that I didn't know that and I didn't learn to install telephone exchanges because I don't think it's really much more difficult than being a ship's operator or anything like that. It's a fairly, fairly low-level technical job. I just wish I had experience in it now. Uh, Yes, well now this redundancy business you were talking about, uh, it's worrying us all, we're all getting put out of work by it, machines are taking over, and I don't think it's going to be like they used to predict in the, in the magazines, that uh, uh, the result of all these machines doing work formerly done by human beings is going to be that you're all going to work a 20 hour week and have lots of time for leisure, I don't think it's going to happen like that, what is going to happen is that a lot of, some people are going to get richer and more important and other people are just going to get damn poor in five years time if I'm earning it at all and uh, anyway I think if the worst comes to the worst I'm going to start another Kelly gang so if you're around in five years time and you want a job you can join my my new Kelly gang because that's the only way it's going to be possible to live I think in the very near future if I, I knew that name that new that name rang a bell I think a Neil Diamond when I said it was a pop singer but Drew Diamond does ring a very strong bell. I don't actually remember what year it was I taught you, but certainly I taught at Sandringham Tech. I think I started there late 1962, and I was there 63, 64, and 65, and certainly I did teach at Drew Diamond. Uh, I'm just trying to think what I taught you. It was one of my Form 1 science classes around about 1963. Uh, that was probably okay. We used to have a bit of fun in them, I seem to remember. And I will be very glad to uh, to uh, see you if you want to come around. By all means, come around and see me. Uh, and uh, I'll give you my address, my address. And that's just near the corner of the Glenfrey Road and Barker's Road. Far from ML. Okay. And Dave's got a 101 if he needs it for receiving. Right, the earlier bit. Here we go. Randall McDonald. I, I, I met Randall McDonald in uh, 1970, I think it was. He was working working for Miller. He was an apprentice technician there. But none of, I haven't seen any of the others for years. And uh, I did go away from Australia in 66. Mm -hmm. No, he has to cheer himself in. Country Gully Tech in 1970. And then I went overseas again, and uh, I've only been back recently. So I'm very glad to catch up with you again, Drew Diamond. You can remind me of uh, some of the things that happened at Sandringham Tech, if you like. I I'm, I'm, uh, uh, thank you for the, uh, the flattering opinion, too, uh, of, uh, of, 
of my teaching ability. I don't know whether it's all true. Maybe uh, sort of uh, the you know a few years gone past, your memory might have dimmed or something like that. But anyway, I'm glad I, I'm glad I left that impression with you. Uh, and thank you very much. Um, Tony's cross-modding you with uh, with his sound effects. Yes. Yes, well, that's very interesting, Drew. And actually, you've given one of the credits to the wrong man. The guy who had the spin dryer was uh, John Watson, I think. I remember John Watson had a spin dryer. I probably borrowed it from him. But I must give him the credit for the, being the, uh, the instigator of the spin dryer. Uh, I remember that, that rocket and rabbit thing. I think my, the one, one thing I used to do quite often was I, ha I, had, a, I had a machine there for generating hydrogen, uh, which we, we gener I generated from from caustic soda and aluminium, and it had uh, it was a bit of a Heath Robinson thing. All that was done in a big flask that used to sit in a bucket. And when it got boiling hot and threatened to crack the flask, it was another bucket full of cold water standing by, which you used to have to tip in to cool it down again. Anyway, with this contraption, I used to inflate the rubber balloons, and then uh, the kids would hang a postcard with a stamp underneath it. And we used to let it fly off, and once we once we got a, we got the, the car back from the Brunswick tip or something, this airmail fell down on the Brunswick tip, and they posted it back. That was a great event. I remember that. Uh, yeah, I was there in 1964, and I was there at the end of 1965. I left at the end of 1965. Anyway, come around and see me by all means. I'll be most interested. Uh, you can find me on 81 and check up first. I'm sure to be home. I'm home most of the time. Actually, I'm only, uh, I'm, I've been out of Australia for a long time. I'm just uh, here in Australia again because my mother's got pretty old and needs uh, somebody around. And uh, I'll probably leave again after a while, I don't know. But anyway, I'll be here for the next few months. So do please come and see me. I'll be very glad to see you. Uh, I used to work at that PMG Research Laboratories years and years ago in Exhibition Street. I used to work once as a draftsman in the PMG department I, in the central office drafting office in Spring Street. Uh, I used to draft radio chassis and things like that. That was a long time ago, that was in the 1950s. And then I worked also at the research labs in Exhibition Street. And there was a, uh, that was in, also in the 50s. And they had some German scientists there they'd brought out from Germany after the war. I don't know how they got hold of them. One was Dr. Rumpelt, and Dr. Rumpelt used to look like uh, something out of a movie and it used to be very cold and if he huddled up in a great big overcoat and he was quite an amiable old guy anyway he used to have these pages and pages of calculations and I used to have to feed these calculations into into a big calculating machine it was like a huge typewriter with hundreds of little windows in it where numbers popped up and you punched into all this information and then you so you go in on lower and this carriage would slowly move across and the figures would come up for the result of the calculation. I, I was there for about a year, I think. I can hardly remember that it was so long ago. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad to... He's a beauty, this Despite the education we gave you at Sandringham Tech, you managed... Say that again. ...and passed some examinations. That's, that's uh, very reassuring to us because... Uh, uh, well, it wasn't a bad tech. It certainly, in those days, the education system had some defects. I think things have probably improved a bit now, but it used to worry me at times then. So I'm glad that uh, that uh, some students did survive it and managed to succeed in spite of it. Uh, yes, I used to teach math. So I, I like teaching science best. I used to have a lot of fun teaching science. There were a lot of things that you could do. 
Well, I think I was a terrible math teacher, actually, so I hope you passed your math example, all right? Uh, if you did, well, I probably didn't teach you. Uh, yeah, well, now, <coughs> what else has been happening? Um, yeah, well, I think I'll put it over to you, Dave. I'm uh, sort of run out of things to say for the moment. Uh, oh, yeah, you, just one thing, Dave. Yeah. So, yes, about the broadcast office certificate. Well, yes, I think I have that. I've got the, the, the general radio communication operators. It's a new thing they've just brought in. It, I used to have a first class, and then I it's this thing superseded, and I did that. So that ought to cover the broadcast office. Maybe I can, uh, I can look into that. I might look into getting a job in a broadcast station if nothing turns up in the shipping business, although I've, a, I've got a chance of getting a shipping job next Tuesday. There's a bloke I know went to England for a holiday, and I don't think he's due back on Tuesday, and I don't think he's going to make it. Yes, well, that's interesting. I do remember Ray Lenthal, uh, and he had a friend called Greg something or other, and he lived just down the road from the school, and they were both great radio fans, and they used to build up things. I remember Ray Lenthal building up some monster of a superhead of a receiver, which was uh, more like everybody's first receiver, was full of dry joints and things like that, and we had to have a look at that. For the reason that you stated, Drew, I'm on 160 because they tolerate AM here. I've got a $70 Pi MTR1 here, uh, which has got both receiver and transmitter in it. Well, I operate it from a clapped-out car battery, which I charge from a battery charger, which cost me 80 cents to make, and I've got an antenna made out of uh, flex from coal and radials made out of an 85 cent roll of galvanised wire that I got from Woolworth. It's garden, it's wire for tying up garden plants. It works until it's rusts away anyway. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I just, I'm too mean, I suppose, to, uh, to, uh, spend a lot of money on amateur radio gear because I really believe what you and Dave believe that electronics is a fun hobby but, but uh, you know you, I've got to sort of, you've got to sort of control yourself because some people go mad with their hobbies and spend their whole life savings on having a, a super whammy DX kilowatt four side band I've got it written down yeah. but in a receiver so that they can one up everybody else and uh, I just can't afford to do that kind of thing. I've got other priorities. So I'm operating... Well, the reason, really, I'm on this band is I'm operating with fairly cheap equipment. And I've only got one crystal for 160 and another one for 80. I used to operate on uh, on, the, on the DX band. When I was at, at Sandringham Tech, I used to have the call sign 3YC, VK3YC, and I lived in South Yarra then, and I had a Type 3 Mark II, and uh, sometimes I used to operate it from the school even, I seem to remember. I used to work a bit of DX with that, not not uh, all around the Pacific, but it worked quite well. I used to have my DX time on CW, but I'm enjoying this business of being able to have uh, sort of ordinary conversations with people. They're interesting conversations, and uh, it's, it's very good when you're bored and there's nobody around and there's nobody to talk to. You can come on 160 and you can have a conversation like what we're having now, have a most interesting time and meet people that you haven't seen for a long time and things like that. I, it's, it's really a, a very good band. It fills a great need there because I'm sort of isolated here at the moment. Uh, I do see my friends from time to time, but I am in a slightly isolated situation and this is really good to be able to converse like that. So I agree with what you both say, that electronics is a cold subject, 
and uh, it's got a, it's got its charm and it's interesting, but it's not to be it's not it's not a thing that you can build your whole life on. Some people do tend to build their whole life on some kind of narrow technological expertise, and uh, I don't think that's a good thing. I think there's more than more than that in life. And I did work in electronics for a long time. I have worked in building prototypes and fault finding and things like that, but it sort of makes it tired. After a day of that, I can remember working in a factory making prototypes and you spend all day with a bench lamp above your head and you're looking into a chassis and you've got the smell of rosin in your nose all the time and it's sort of a great strain on the eyes. I used to come out feeling cross-eyed. It used to take me about an hour to unwind after a day like that, just constantly peering into some machine, looking at the bits of it, trying to work out what was wrong with it or put something into it can sort of wear you out. I've discovered since then anyway that there's a lot more to life but it's just, anyway it's quite legitimate to be wrapped up in technology when you're in your early in your, in your teens and your early 20s because that's the time that you're learning and it's fascinating and you're very good at things when you're that young and it's all new to you and you're learning so it's quite legitimate to be wrapped up in it then but you do tend to sort of disentangle from it as you get older. Uh, interesting Dave there that you have other have had technical school teachers in your family and you know the uh, temporary teacher scene. Well, I, I was in a similar situation when I went to school. I went to Swinburne Tech, uh, where, where I, that's where I did my secondary education, and that was during the war, and we had the same situation because all able-bodied teachers went to the war. They were all in the services, and we had a lot of funny old teachers who were all in their 50s and 60s who'd come out of retirement and, and sort of amateur teachers and people like that. So I was really caught in a similar situation. Some of them were, were, were quite good and some of them weren't, but uh, I, I remember them with affection anyway. They weren't too bad. Uh, as for a sort of alternative way to make a living, uh, I think the further you get into this technological thing, the narrower it gets. Uh, the electronics industry has never been well known for being particularly well paid. It's always been a sort of an underpaid occupation because they rely on, to some extent, on young men doing it just for the love of it. They do too. Uh, they, they, they like the idea of working in some big organisation where they've got all this fantastic machinery and that's the one way that they can get get to uh, to work on it and to come close to it without actually having to own it themselves. And the young men do uh, tend to uh, have a lot of enthusiasm for that kind of work. But uh, I, 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 if I, I was a young man again, I think I might learn to fly or something like that. I, uh, you have to be physically fit for it, and you've got to, you, you, it's too bad if you've got grass or anything like that. But that's not a... That, that looks to me, anyway, to be an interesting opening. For the millionth time... Uh, I know that um, uh, there are IS number of comparisons to be made. You can go and work in Indonesia or you can go and work in the Pacific Islands because they use those things in all sorts of exotic places if you happen to, if travelling happens to appeal to you. And uh, it's also fairly well paid and, uh, and uh, reasonably independent, I think. I, th I think that would be a sort, of, a sort of thing I might turn to if I, if I was thinking about doing it again. Uh, what else have I got down here on the notes? Yes, you asked me what shipboard life is like. Well, shipboard life actually is a great pain in the arm. That's not quite the word I would use if I wasn't on the air. But uh, it tends to be fairly boring. It, a, a lot depends on the ship that you get on. I have been on one or two ships where everything clicked and it fell together. But 
the coastal ships are pretty boring because you go on uh, from A to B on them in a, uh, around the Australian coast and the place you arrive at is just like the place you just left with the same custom and uh, uh, there's not really much to do and uh, it does get to be a bit boring but on the coast, well, the time you spend between ports is mercifully short so it doesn't matter too much and it happens to be well paid these days and you get lots of leave. But the ships that I most enjoyed working on when I did work on ships were the foreign ships with foreign crews. I was on one once, it was a Liberian flagship and it had about seven nationalities on it. And we got on very well on that ship, that was a very pleasant ship to be on. And uh, I've enjoyed sometimes sailing with, with Spanish people and with Chinese crews, they've been interesting. And uh, I, I used to sail with the Greeks once, and I found that they weren't bad people uh, or in many, many of the times. You found the, the odd um, uh, one that was hard to get on with, but most of them were okay. They, one thing that was good about the Greek crews was that drunkenness is not a Greek vice. One of the problems when you're sailing on ships with northern European cruisers that, that there tend to be a few sort of mad alcoholics on board who can make life uh, a bit of a pain. But anyway, the Greeks didn't have that vice. It's not a Greek vice to get drunk, so you didn't have to put up with drunks on Greek ships. And they rather people who try very hard to make you feel at home. And when you go in Rotterdam or somewhere like that and you go into town with, it, with the Greeks, well, you're there foreigner and they won't let you pay for anything and their, their hospitality can be overwhelming and they weren't too bad they used to their ships were pretty rickety they used to say it's a broken mr john that was about all the english that a lot of them knew it's broken if, uh if i know what you say about the the uh, the research at the top not filtering down i think it's just a a question of economics they um there's sort of Places in the public service payroll for researchers and they research, uh, but uh, what actually gets built in, in sort of mass quantities is, is controlled strictly by economics. Uh, particularly now that wages are going up and sort of economies are being pulled in and there's a downturn in the economy all over, uh, we're, not, we're, we're not just just not going to get things improved. I think that. Uh, it's always been so that, that uh, well, you, you sort of hear rumours that they can make an electric light bulb that'll never never wear out and socks that won't get holes in them and things like that. All these things sort of exist in laboratories, but economics uh, prevents them from becoming widespread. Uh, SRAM at a radio, the trend's changing. Yes, I remember when I was a, well, very young, I used to build receivers out of all sorts of old junk. They had 58s and 57s and 27s and... 42s and things like that in them. It certainly doesn't pay to uh, uh, to build your own get out. But electronics is getting very complicated. A lot of shipboard stuff is changing. Instead of having sort of uh, a railway engineered simple uh, equipment, they've now got things that are made out of cardboard and tin foil with hundreds of transistors and they don't actually work any better. They're just more fragile and they uh, harder to work on a rolling ship, but you've got to accept them because that's the way the industry is bent. But a lot of other good things have come out of it. I've got an electronic calculator here, which I bought for six dollars, and it's the, the equivalent of the old-fashioned mechanical adding machine where you punched in the numbers and you pull the handle and it printed things on a roll of paper and it weighed about half a ton. This little thing I've got is the equivalent of it. I can stick it in my pocket and I don't know it's there and I don't know how, how I ever lived without it. 
So we are getting some good out of it. Uh, there are, and electronics is, is also getting a lot cheaper. Uh, I think they've given up the idea in Australia that uh, the electronics manufacturing industry is viable here because there was a time when you had to pay duty on transistor radios. You don't have to do that anymore. They've just uh, recognised the fact that... Mm. Mm. I might go and do some... Mm. Zuck. Zuck. Uh, have you written this out yet? world in the United States or England or wherever you like, you get stuff with a local name brand on it. When you turned upside down, you discover it was made in Japan or somewhere like that. The Japanese have just uh, so far out in front that nobody's ever going to catch up with them again. Uh, anyway, I won't rave on too long this over because I see that uh, everybody's voted to go to bed and it's really not a bad idea. It's pretty late. And although I'm a night person myself, I'm going to just slip up to 1850 and see Tony's still there. And he probably will be still there, but he's probably playing a tape or sound effects and it's hard to get into the act, so I'll probably end up going to bed myself very soon. It's been very interesting talking to you both, and uh, do ring me up and do come over and see me, Drew Diamond. I'd certainly like to see you again, and I'm very glad to have caught up with you. It's quite a surprise to me, but... Uh to speak to you tonight. I knew I knew that name Drew Diamond when Dave mentioned it, but I quite, couldn't quite place it. But but uh, please come and see me. I'll be very interested to see you. So uh, their own country and their own manufacturing. So and that they're able to sell the things fairly cheap. Or, or the same things happening to us now. Our local wages have got so high in comparison to to those countries that it just doesn't pay. I've seen a lot of things. There was a uh, a chap in. Uh, Sydney had a boat building business and he, he was shifting his operation to the Philippines. He said he couldn't compete here anymore. Uh, there were be boats being made in Taiwan and that were brought out here that were very good quality and uh, selling cheaper than they could be manufactured here. So he, he was going to, unable to beat them, he was going to join them and move his operation to Taiwan and just be a sales agent. A lot of people are finding this, but but uh, they're no longer in manufacturing, they're just in sales now. The manufacturing is being done somewhere else. So I suppose it's one of the prices we pay for living in a country with a very high standard of living. When you've got a very high standard of living, that means higher wages than other people have got, and uh, that makes it very hard to, to uh, export competitively. So uh, what the lesson I read for myself from this is that I've got no future in Australia. If I can't beat them, I have to join them too. I'll probably ultimately have to uh, go to Hong Kong or somewhere and start working for uh, Japanese ship owners or something like that. If they're making all the dough, then I'll have to go to where it is or go to Europe and start working for Arab ship owners because a lot of Arab uh, money's getting into shipping. Now, I hear there are jobs there uh, on uh, Kuwaiti flag and stuff like that, or even if, it's not, even if it's got some other flag, a lot of it's got Arab money in it. So if they've got the money, you've got to go and get some of, uh, some of it off them. A, that, that's, that applies too to the Nauruans here. We've got the Nauruans investing in this country, and they get a lot of attention here because they've got a lot, lot of money to invest. So if, you, if there's no money around here, well, I have to be mobile. I have to go and find it. But I really think that you've got to, if, if you're an engineer now, well, you'll probably find that, that you're going to turn into a sales engineer in the, over the next five or ten years. That's about the size of it, I think. Uh, you said okay about Barbarilla now. I knew, I saw that in the paper this morning and I knew there was something I wanted to see on TV, but by the time this evening came, I'd forgotten all about it or it got scrambled in my head. 
and I missed it. Now, I'm very sorry that I missed it because I wanted to watch it, but it clashed with a couple of other things. I liked that uh, Vanishing World thing, too, so if it clashed with that, I, well, I, I'm probably glad I saw The Vanishing World because they'll put Barbarella on again sooner or later, I suppose. But that's, that's probably the first time it's been on TV. It's reasonably recent for a TV movie. Uh, no, I, I didn't read the education page on the age because I don't get the... Well, some weeks I get the age, other weeks I get the Australian. I'm in my getting the Australian phase today. But I'll have a look at it in the library tomorrow. And every morning I go up to the Q library and I pass it anyway on my way somewhere else. So I'll nip in there tomorrow and have a look at it and uh, see what it's all about. Uh, as for contacting San Francisco, will you be probably be better off to write to your son and get your son to do the uh, the canvassing over there for somebody to set up a, a sketch. He's probably in a much better position to find out than you are because he's on the spot. I don't know whether he's a, he's in amateur radio or in radio at all, but anyway, he's, he's sort of located better to do the thing. Uh, I think you said, too, that you, uh, that you were going to make a battery charger. Now, I had to make a battery charger for this battery that runs my equipment here. And uh, they've got very nice ones in the local ironmongers for $26, and it's really cheap for what it is. It's well worth the money. But anyway, I didn't have $26 because I'm more unemployed than employed. So I made myself a battery charger, and I went into the city to that place in Middle Lonsdale, opposite the other place. And they've got some uh, some rectifiers there. They're just a little silicon rectifier about as big as a large... Uh, no, it's not even, as big as a... Uh, what? It's about a quarter of an inch diameter by a quarter of an inch deep. Anyway, it's cost me 75 cents, and it will rectify uh, 18 amps. So that's all the current that you need. And then I've got a, a radio transformer here with the windings, the filament windings connected up to give me about... Well, I've got the 5 and the 6.3 together. That gives me 11.3. Good stainless steel sink. I was going to visit a friend in Upway, and I was walking along the street, and I came across this beautiful stainless steel sink. So I picked it up and put it on my shoulder... I carried it for about a mile and a half because this bloke was renovating his kitchen. It was just the thing he wanted. It was in perfect condition. I, don't, I still don't know to this day why they threw it out, but the, the he who threw it out gave me the okay to take it, so he really didn't want it. People do throw out some good things. Uh, as for TVs, well, I was down at the Hawthorne Tip the other day, take a load, load of rubbish down there, and there were quite a lot of TVs tipped on the tip. I think a lot of these trade-in people, they don't even bother to, uh, to put put the uh, traded in TVs, black and white TVs up for sale again, they just get somebody to take them to the tip. So that's a, if you've got a, if you live near a tip, well that's a good place to go if you want to find stuff. So I think TV, TV chassis are a great source of parts, you can certainly get a lot of things out of them if you're selective, and the transformers are very good, certainly the filament windings are very hefty, although the HT was usually just a... Uh, a single 200 volt winding, they used bridge rectifiers or something like that, so You'd have to have a couple of them to get, or even three, to get sufficient power for, for a 600 volts for a transmitter or something like that. For, for battery charging purposes, well, they're ideal if you can get your, if you if you can uh, take the chassis. And the trouble with taking the chassis home is that you take off what you want, then you've got to throw them out again. But that's not too difficult. Actually, I used to get a lot of. Uh, I used to, I don't know whether I've told you this before, but uh, I, I, when I was working in in London, well, I used to be in London sometimes for four or six months at a time and then go work again. Sometimes I used to spend the winter there. And the first thing I did when I got there was get a room and then the next thing was to walk down the streets where they have these big steel uh, sort of uh, boxes. They call them skips. They put them in the street. People put their rubbish in and a special truck comes and takes it away. 
Anyway, it was in an area where there were a lot of flats where people were coming and going, and they used to hire TVs, and then they'd throw them out when they left, or I don't know why they got thrown out. But anyway, there was always a fine selection of TV sets, and I used to walk around and pick a good-looking one, and then take it home and fix it, and there usually wasn't much wrong with them. And then after that, when I had one going, every time I saw another, well, I'd have a plastic bag, and I'd pull all the valves out, by, and I accumulated a huge quantity, a great box of old valves, so that that, and uh, several of these TVs I gave some away to my friends and I always had enough valves to keep them going so you can get a lot of good things for nothing although it's tightened up recently now that things have got tougher people don't tend not to throw out very good things but with uh, things like TVs they'll throw them out because uh, for, uh, for non-technical people the cost of fixing even a simple fault is quite high and often it's worth more than the TV and anyway they don't know whether, whether the fault's simple or whether it's not. If it doesn't go, it doesn't go. Uh, thanks for reminding me about that disposal's place in North Melbourne. I'd forgotten all about that. It's years since I've been there. I'd completely forgotten that. I must go there tomorrow and have a good look at it and see what, what they've got. Uh, maybe I'll find something there uh, that I'm looking for. I really had forgotten all about that. Yeah, OK about looking at books in, the, in those bookshops. Yes, I do a bit of that. I look at their books. Uh, but I don't take a pencil out. But, I, uh, for example, if I want to find out somebody's address or something like that, well, I go and have a look at that American Foreign Listings $18 call book. I never buy it, but I just take a quick look at it and memorise what I need to memorise. I hope they're not listening. But uh, you know, a lot of those books are very dear. You'd have to be a millionaire to uh, dabble in them all. Some of them are quite interesting. Uh, the pity they haven't got more of them in libraries. I suppose the WIA has got a library where you might find that stuff, but I'm only guessing there. I don't know uh, just how extensive their uh, their library is. Uh, but okay, on the teletype, well, uh, yes, I think you would have to get into a group to uh, to get the information efficiently. And uh, I, I would be interested to find out more about teletype. It's something that's coming in on ships. It's something I should know more about, so maybe I'll go and... Uh, get my hands on a teletype book if I can find one. Actually, that wouldn't be a bad idea. I know that motor speed control that you're talking about, they have those series motors with a, a centrifugal governor that, are, that makes and breaks a, a circuit. They have them on uh, on depth sounders, echo sounders on ships. I'm familiar with them. They're a bit of a pain in the neck. Uh, they, they've, they've got a carbon ring. Uh, that's, that's the sort of central component of them and it wears away and they can be a pain in the neck to adjust you've got two sort of little weights uh, counterbalanced by springs that fly out when the speed gets up and if it gets high enough it opens a contact but they are, it is a primitive sort of a thing I think you're much better off with the uh, uh, synchronous motor if you can get it anyway it should be quite interesting I think they have teletype circuits over quite long distances I've heard of people operating teletypes from the North Sea into Sydney radio and things like that and they've got something called error correcting I don't know what that means but there is something called error correcting so they, they must have some device to uh, to weed out errors caused by stray bursts of QRN and things like that I don't know how you get on I think they work on a frequency shift principle actually so they, they wouldn't really have that problem I think they work on frequency shift they must clip off the tops and clip out all the noise but I'm not exactly sure but I know that you can uh, hook them up fairly simply 
to an ordinary communications receiver. I remember working for the Red Cross once in Bangladesh, and uh, while we never had teletype there, they used to use it sometimes, and we had manuals showing you how to hook up a teletype to uh, the ordinary receiver, and it didn't look too difficult. It seemed to be quite a simple operation as far as I could see. I don't know what accessory you have to go with it. I've got an idea they had a little, a little uh, sort of... Um, black box that went between the receiver and the teletype, but I don't know what was in it. I never really took much notice at the time. Yes, okay, well thanks for the tip about the uh, the prices up there at North Melbourne. I'll still go in and have a look anyway. I may find something there. Uh, yeah, I, I saw those TV front ends down in Richmond, but the, the, I, I, I prefer to get the whole thing if I can with the ratio detector and audio and everything on the one board. I'll find a, a better quality circuit board of uh, the same description, I'll get that going. I just need one for local reception or an old TV set to do too. You could easily uh, put a converter in front of an old TV set or just tweak the uh, the, the uh, turret a bit to receive on 144. I just want it for crossbands. I just need a 144 receiver here for crossbands. I don't think I'm going to transmit on it. I don't listen on two metres, but you make it sound like the citizen's band. They say there's no necessity for a citizen's band, but if, if everybody's using it to... Uh, to uh, uh, say where the pet was available and stuff like that. Well, I suppose I could actually see a need for citizens' band. It's slightly more disciplined than citizens' band. I'm not. I'm not opposed to because I'd, the amateurs don't occupy the 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 the, the, the thirty the ten metre band. The bit between twenty eight and twenty nine point seven. That's quite a bit of frequency. Quite a number of channels there, but they can't occupy that, and neither can they occupy eleven. It's just something that was flung at them because it's got industrial stuff on it. I really can't see any reason for keeping the citizens' band people off it. I think uh, there's, there's more things for citizens' band than there are against it. There's, there's a lot of both, but there's a fair bit for it. It is useful for people uh, calling for help if they're, if they're uh, stuck without petrol or something like that. Uh, I, can, I can see a lot of positive uses for it. You may get a few ratbags who uh, use bad language and carry on on it, but... Um, I think the others would discipline them if they got themselves into clubs or something like that, if they had to pay a licence fee and have a call sign. Uh, anyway, I think it's here to stay. It's like that other thing. It's here now. They've all spent their $200 on their gear, and they're not going to give it up, and I don't think uh, fining them or persecuting them will do any good. I think it's better to get the 20 bucks off them and uh, give them call signs and let them go. Anyway, a lot, of, a lot of people wouldn't agree with me, but that's just what I think. That was very interesting. Kevin, I, I, I've got a cold like yours coming on too. I felt it tonight. It must be going around. We have to put up with it. Uh, I noticed you you were saying about the ships at sea starting early. All that's changed, you know. They don't keep those stupid watch-keeping hours on the coastal ships now. They they start at 9 in the morning, no, 8 in the morning, and go till noon in a one, one four-hour watch, a non-stop watch. And then you go from... Uh, two to four in the afternoon and from seven to nine in the evening, which is much more civilised than it used to be with that two hours on and two hours off business because the hours off was absolutely useless. You couldn't sleep, you couldn't get anything done. You'd just unwind a bit and you'd be back on watch again. And I always remember that very last watch on the coast at the end of midnight used to be very tedious. It'd be so noisy or so crammed with signals you couldn't read anything. And it used to sort of hypnotise me and almost put me to sleep, so I'm glad it's all over. Uh, that's what I used to like about freelancing on the Greek ships and things like that. 
I just I used to do eight hours work a day, but I used to just arrange it to cover the periods when I could work the stations that I had to work, and I used to shift it around a lot, and nobody cared. You know, you weren't stuck to this so stupid, rigid British system. This uh, this new this this new one they've got on the coast is a, not a bad compromise, but I still prefer to be freelancing and please myself the, to work at the times when what I was copying was coming through. You feel quite ridiculous if you're sitting on watch early in the morning and you know that at the place where the office is, where they're going to send you the telegrams from, well it's still five o'clock in the morning and nothing's going to happen for four hours and you're sitting there like a stuffed dummy for four hours, you know, and on, on those ships you've really got to work. It's really hard work to uh, to make the sort of long distance shortwave contact and get the traffic. So uh, I used to do my eight hours watch keeping and keep watch on 500 for mariners in distress. I have ever heard any, but I used to make it at eight hours that suited me and let the auto alarm do it the rest of the time. And incidentally, those modern auto alarms are very good too. They you ring, they sometimes they ring for for distress signals in Hawaii and the United States and places like that. They're very sensitive. Uh, and, and another thing is you don't get a cup of tea anymore on board the ship. None of this business with a steward coming around and uh, bring you a cup of tea at 10 o'clock and, and all that. They might bring you one in the morning if they have to, but they're, they've got very independent and uh, they're sort of pricing themselves out of a job. They're, they've got so useless that it'll soon be economical to put in, uh, put in uh, self-service sort of cafeteria-style style, uh, eating places and to sort of pre-cook the meals and heat them in an oven like they do for the airlines. I can see that coming in a little while too. Uh, actually, stewards are, some stewards are all right, but some of them can be be very hard to get on. I, on the last ship that I was on, the steward used to vacuum clean the carpet in my cabin about once every two months. And one morning he stuck his head in and went cook because there were toenail clippings on the floor. And he told me I must put down a sheet of paper when I clipped my toenails, but the joke was they weren't my toenail clippings, they were there from the last bloke, and this bugger hadn't... I'm sorry about that, the inspector, or... Uh, this person hadn't vacuum cleaned it for so long, or so the one before him hadn't, and uh, that's the way it is these days. You don't get the service that you used to get. I don't... Uh, you still you still manage to get along, though, I don't know. It's... Uh, but not on this coast you don't get the service that you used to get anyway. Maybe you do where they've still got Indians and people like that. Uh, yeah, well, now, about the newspaper business, well, yes, I, I, I did get a write-up in the Financial Review of last Wednesday. That's yesterday, a week a week ago, a week before yesterday, and uh, that was very good. And then um, last Thursday, some persons from the Sydney Telegraph came out and asked a few questions, and the I bought the Telegraph here on Sunday, but it wasn't in it. But it seems that they only they have a different edition in New South Wales and Queensland, and the article was printed in the New South Wales and Queensland edition, but not in the Victorian edition. So I was telling everybody to get the Victorian edition. They all did, and they wasted their money, 25 cents, I think it costs. Anyway, I've written away to the distribution office in New South Wales to get a copy of this thing, but I haven't seen it myself yet, but it'll turn up, I suppose. Anyway, by this time, my face will be wrapped around fish and chips and, and potatoes in all the Sydney fish and chip shops and greengrocers, I suppose. Uh, actually, everything's very quiet. I've heard no more about it yet. I don't know whether I will or not. Uh, I got a letter from one very large nationalised shipping company to say that... Uh, that uh, for the time being they were going to carry on as they used to and that's how it's going to go for most of them for a while I think I think it's going to be a while before 
any any of them actually break away. At least they're free to break away now, which they weren't before. But it'll be a while before they uh, do it. It's like when you open the uh, uh, the door for the budgerigars; they don't fly out of the cage at once. They've got too used to being in there. Uh, yeah, about the uh, okay about Dave. What's at VK3 ASE working at Steam Radio, and you're down there at TV. I thought you might uh, possibly meet if you're if you're on sort of. Uh, on uh, outdoor assignments or something like that, but as you tell me, he's an operator there, so he probably doesn't get on outdoor assignments. And okay, on the uh, the te- technology skill, yes, I think it's very necessary. But I do feel myself that I've been hopelessly left behind by modern technology. I hardly know anything about about logic and computers and stuff like that. And I, when I was a nipper, when I was about, well, it must have been about 1941 or no, 1942, when I was about 11 or 12 years old. I started buying radio on hobbies, and when I first bought it, I couldn't understand much of it. I used to read the DX page and stuff like that, and I couldn't understand too much. Then I built one or two things out of it, and then I got—I used to like that thing, and I got very used to it. I used to—I bought it for years and years and years. I had stacks of it here, and I learned learned quite a lot from it. And I was in Sydney last year, and I was in a second-hand bookshop, and they had stacks and stacks of old radio on hobbies, and I bought one from 1939, I think it was. Uh, just when the war had started, it was very interesting to look back on it and uh, look at the projects that were in it. It's real nostalgia. I just bought one to keep for uh, just to, to sort of bring back those memories. It really does look weird. But uh, when I pick up the modern one, it's turned to Electronics Australia or something like that. I can't understand what they're on about it. It's got very commercial, I think. There's a whole lot of hi-fi stuff in it. Well, I suppose hi-fi is necessary, but it's sort of switched to hi-fi and switched to, to logic stuff. And there's hardly any communication stuff in it. Now, a few things, but not... It's the, the, the emphasis has gone off communication stuff and on to digital and logic stuff. And, uh, and I did, I did read, it, read it whenever I can find it. I suppose I, I could start again like I did when I was tw- 11 or 12, and I could uh, uh, learn something from it. I suppose I should buy it. It's a dollar a copy now. That's pretty dear. Anyway, I can read it in the local library. I should go and try and read it. And I should build some of those things with... Uh, with the integrated circuit chips. I've got a bag full of them. I was walking around London once and I found a place where they were selling plastic bags with 200 uh, integrated circuits in them for, for two pounds or something. So that was about a penny each. And I bought them and I brought them home here and I've got them all uh, stacked away. I was sort of sorting through them the other night. I've got some quite good ones there. I've probably got enough to build something out of. I ought to try it. I've got, uh, because you've either got to get, get into it or get out of it. You can't... Uh, it's no good. Uh, it's just no good being around with sort of crystal set technology anymore. Nobody wants to know about it. But it's very interesting what you were saying about the uh, the bloke with the blue glow at his valve. I can remember having a blue glow on a few of mine when I was a, when I was about or when I got to be about 14 or 15 or even younger than that. We used to build super heads, but we used to have some very weird uh, bits in them, 27s and uh, and those old 47s. Remember the old 47s with the directly heated filament and the great big uh, uh, sort of pear-shaped bulb on them. Well, we used to get hold of those and run them, and you had to have a centre-tap resistor on the filament because it was a directly heated filament. And uh, uh, those funny old AK series valves with four-volt filaments and funny sort of sockets with little flat pegs sticking out the side. They were used to be in European receivers. Uh, I think they must have been... It was Philips technology, really. It was, it, a lot of receivers that had Philips valve, valves had that kind of socket on them. I forget what they were called, but they had eight pins, but it was a funny arrangement with little flat bits of metal sticking out sideways that made contact on spring clips on the inside of a deep socket. 
And anyway, I used to get a few blue glows and a few of those. I've had a few 80s and things like that with red glows and blue glows. And there used to be the blue glow when there was gas in the tube. That was always bad news. You usually got it in rectifiers and things like that. But then there was the other blue glow that used to be a sort of a fluorescent shine right on the glass. And that was good news. That meant a high vacuum. I remember that all right. But, you know, I, this, is, this is all the things that I learned, and it's all obsolete now. It really... It really uh, 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 worries me that I learned all this stuff and it's all rubbish now. Nobody wants to know about it, you know. So I'll have, have to probably work in the museum when I'm 68, getting things going that nobody understands anymore. Uh, I don't know the FRG7 receiver that you mentioned directly, but I do know the principle. I have seen that type of receiver. It's a very good system, and it sounds very cheap at that price in Hong Kong. But, of course... Uh, I don't know how you're going to go, get on with the customs. I think you're allowed to have one transistor radio, I think. If you come in with... You're allowed to bring in one transistor radio. It'll be a pretty big transistor radio, but you're still allowed to bring it in. I think if it was a transmitter or something like that, you'd be in trouble. You'd have to pay for it, but you'll probably get away with it because I think they've taken the, uh, the duty off transistor radios now. They've given up protecting the local industry. They realise that it, it can never compete, and the Japanese are king in this business and they've given up trying, so you'll probably get that in. That's a very good system. I must do something like that myself next time I'm up that way, if I ever get up there again. Uh, actually, there's another receiver on the market here, a disposals receiver that goes in one meg step. I think it's built by Philips, and there's one in the window of that shop opposite the back of our largest department store in Lonsdale Street. It's been there for some time. And it's a valve receiver, and it's in a very solid sort of a steel box. I think you could hit it with an axe and break your axe. And I've seen a few of them advertised in trading posts too. But that bloke opposite the back of the largest department store is rather pricey. I think he wants about 300 dB for the one he's got in there. I don't think I'd pay 300 dB for it because I could get a new one for that. But I have seen the same thing advertised in, uh, in trading posts. Uh, for something less than that, quite a bit less, and that goes in one one meg steps, and it's an interesting looking thing, and it's got a little, it's got a, the speakers on the panel. It's all sort of covered in khaki paint, but the thing that got me about it was the one meg steps, and I think it's got uh, a pretty good uh, selection of selectivities too. I wonder if you know anything about the receiver that I'm talking about. Its code begins with R. It's R and a four-letter number or something like that after it. But it's not the old one that used to be in Liberator Bomber. It's not that terrible old thing with the rainbow sort of half-moon dial. I'm not thinking of that one. The dial on the one that I'm describing is a little window about five inches long and half an inch wide with a sort of a roller-type scale that shifts around inside it. Um, uh, yes, very good, uh, Kevin. Now, I've only been with Indian crews once, and uh, all I remember about them was they, they were nice blokes, but they were getting screwed. I think they were getting... Five pound a month, or five, what do I mean? No, it wasn't five pound a week, it was five pound. I think it was five pound a month. It was in the 60s, it was incredibly, incredibly little money. And they were, it was a new ship, it was a, a Liberian ship, but it was a sort of a, a arm of a British company. And they got their Indians from India on the British system. And they had special cab, Indian cabins with four bunks in them. And if one got out of bed, well, the others had to stay in. It was one of those deals, and they didn't like it, I seem to remember. Uh, they are, they are nice, but they do, well, they, by my standards, they get screwed, although they say that the money they get to, uh, enough to send to their wives, I suppose it's better than starving, but they seem to, to work, 
bit about the lowest paid of all crews and the and the most docile and the most sort of accepting of it. And uh, it's a bit sad, really, in some ways. It used to make me uneasy sometimes to uh, to work on those ships with very low paid crews because you'd meet them ashore or something and you'd say hello to them and. Uh, and you'd be in some place where everything was fairly expensive and, and you could afford it, but they couldn't, you know. They, it cost them two days' wages for a beer or something like that. That used to worry me a little bit. If they drank beer, I don't know what they did. Uh, well, I'd never been around at Ramadan, but I remember once I was in Bangladesh in 1973, I think it was, and that's a Muslim place in Dakar, and they have a, a festival called Eid. And it's sort of like Christmas. So they eat every everybody has to kill something. They've all got to kill an animal, and uh, some can only afford to kill a chicken, and uh, some of them kill a cow. And there's a special ceremony they perform with the blood. And I can remember going in a car along a road there, uh, where they just rich farmers just slaughtered a cow, and they were busy hacking it up, and they were taking a slash at its stomach, and then all the entrails fell out when blub 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 on the road, you know. It looked pretty terrible. I can remember seeing the same scene at the abattoirs in Melbourne because in my school teaching days I used to go down there for bits and pieces. That was pretty terrible too. The only difference was they they sort of did it behind walls. It wasn't public. Uh, yeah, okay, about people who spend $2,000 on a lot of gear. Well, that seems ridiculous to me because for $2,000 I could... I, I, it's no good saying uh, hello. Uh, we're having nice weather. Goodbye to the DX for two thousand dollars. I could actually go there and live among them for two months or something like that and meet them face to face. So, so uh, it seems like a waste of two thousand dollars to me. But it's still, it's not very much, I suppose. If you if you have the gear over a long time and you compare it with the cost of a used car or something like that, I suppose if you sort of nail down by one foot in Melbourne, you can't get out of it. Well, it's. Uh, it's good stuff. I suppose it's a, it, it makes it bearable anyway. But anyway, it's not my cup of tea. I wouldn't spend that money on all that gear, and I certainly agree with you. It was a lot better in the old days when you made your own gear and it actually worked. And I, hear, you know, I seem to remember that on the homemade receivers I had in the old days, I heard a hell of a lot more DX than I'm hearing these days. I used to listen to, on 20 metres in the weekends on Saturdays and Sundays, and I used to regularly hear G's and all sorts of European and South American and North American and stations from all over the world. I used to hear the whole world. Maybe I didn't hear the 30-watt stations, but I heard the blacks who had a 100, 100 or 150 or four or 500, and I used to send away reports and get their cards. That used to be my hobby when I was 15 or 16. But I used to hear them, and I used to hear them quite well, too, on my homemade receiver. And what I've got, at the, got now isn't really much better, but I just don't hear it. I don't know why. It doesn't work that way anymore. Uh, yeah, I remember those octode converters and things like that with the gold paint on them. I remember those Philips cells with the gold paint. There was one, I think it was called AK-1, and it had A meant a 4-volt heater and E meant a 6-volt heater. And the AK-1 was an octode converter, and then you had heptode converters and stuff like that. And then it was it was big big deal if you had a 6K-8, because a 6K-8 worked better on HF, and then there was ECH-35 took over. But that was getting fairly modern. That had octal base. Uh, okay, on the spark transmitters, I've never seen one actually, although I can remember there were a few around in the 60s when I first went to sea, but I can remember when I was a kid, there used to be a, a magazine put out by the army called Salt, and my, I, had, I had a friend whose father used to work at Victoria Barracks, and he used to bring copies of Salt home, and I've had articles in Salt about how to make, it had all sorts of articles, articles on how to get 
water when you were in the desert. I remember the system was you went to a dried up water hole and you dug and you found these frogs that were bloated with water. And uh, when the drought came on, they used to fill themselves with water and bury themselves in the mud. So you gave them a squeeze and you got the water out of them. That was one of the things I learned from salt. And another one was you could make a spark transmitter out of a T-model Ford coil. And we used to go down to the car wreckers and get T-model Ford coils for a shilling. And I had a half a dozen of them here. And I used to make transmitters out of them. And then we used to uh, draw big sparks off them and, uh, and uh, get our sort of innocent friends to come along. And they'd point their finger at them. And then the big spark would jump out on their finger. And you could see it. It was about three inches long. And they'd get hurled across the yard. And everybody had all about laughing. We used to have a lot of fun with things like that. I wish I had a Ford coil. Now, even that would be worth a few, Bob. But we used to uh, think nothing of them. Then we had lots and lots of them. Uh, yeah, uh, okay, on the old gear in the museums. Yes, there is. A, I can remember my old man made a receiver, and it was in a cabinet about five feet long. It stood on legs, and it had about four stages, and each stage had its own vernier dial. And, uh, and then it had a horn speaker and about three sets of headphones. And when you tuned it up, you'd have to run along and tune each stage separately. They weren't ganged, and it was regenerative, and you'd have to adjust the whistle and stuff like that. I can remember that stuff. And I can remember a lot of old commercial crystal sets be laying about when I was a kid, too. And I've also seen those TRF receivers you mentioned, where the emergency receiver being a crystal set with a real crystal detector was built in the back. I've seen one or two of those about, I seem to remember. Uh, actually, uh, we, we are getting pretty old, Kevin, because we're actually pre-tape recorder. I can remember when the first tape recorders came to light. The first time I saw a tape recorder, it wasn't even a tape recorder, it was a wire recorder, and it was at the studios of Radio Australia, and it would have been about 1947 or 1948. And I used to know a bloke in there. He used to be in our DX club, and I used to go there once in a while. And he had a, had this wire recorder, which was a sort of a piece of Martian apparatus that everybody sort of stood six feet back from. You you get one for five dollars in a junk shop now, I suppose. But anyway, fancy that. Well, I'm I'm pre-tape recorder. I can remember my cousin used to have a a thing for cutting wax discs with a sort of a, a screw that drove the head across the disc, and these special wax discs. And when you'd cut cut the disc, well you had to be very careful with it, you could only play it about half a dozen times and it wore out, I can remember that stuff, and they, they were on aluminium with a coating of wax on them and uh, I, I know what you mean about that uh, that old gear where you had motors driven from amplified sine waves that were converted from something else, because in about 1954 I used to be a draftsman for the PMG and uh, and uh, I, I worked on the, the first speaking clock, and the first speaking clock was like that. It had a, uh, uh, a, a crystal oscillator, and then the frequency was divided and divided and divided until you got down to about 60 cycles, I think it was, and then that was amplified with some great fat tubes, and that drove a synchronous motor, and the synchronous motor had, uh, had uh, sort of wheels on it, and the wheels had brass segments set into them, and every time it turned around once, it made contact on this brass segment. I suppose that's on the junk pile by now, too. But that was a big deal in those days, too. You could dial on the telephone and the voice would tell you the time. And I remember they got special glass discs with the voice recorded on it from from Europe somewhere. 
and uh, it was on that sort of old-fashioned principle that they used on the old-time sound movies before they put the magnetic strip on them where you had a sort of a, uh, a transparent uh, material with a, a wavy sort of dark line on it. And it, was like, it was on that principle, and that used to do the, do the talking. I remember that well. And um, what else have we got here? Uh, yeah, and also, I'm talking about old gear. I was up in Rabaul in 1975, in New Guinea, and I know that up there they found there's a Japanese naval radio station they had in a cave up there apparently. And anyway, the entrance of the cave got caved in by the bombardment, and they only recently opened it up, and they've got all these huge transmitters and all this Japanese radio gear that's been entombed in this cave for about 20 years. And in the middle of the town of Rabaul there's Admiral Yamamoto's bunker. It's a concrete bunker. And uh, they've got some sort of souvenirs in there, and among them, uh, Japanese radio of the time. Now, it, was, it impressed me as being very con compact. It's valve stuff, but very, very compact. They had tr transmitter and receiver in a little case that was about the size of a sort of a pocket paperback book, about six or seven inches by about four inches by five inches, and they packed quite a lot in there. And I seem to remember our own gear of that time was entirely different. There was a, uh, a set, I remember, that was full of 1K5s. It was about as, about two foot long, and 18 inches deep and six inches thick, and only put out about a quarter of a watt. I remember seeing that thing after the war. This Japanese stuff made, made some of ours look rather large and clumsy, but I suppose we're large and clumsy in comparison to them, so we could carry it around. Anyway, we won with it just the same, but the Japanese stuff was really good. I'll just make a couple of brief comments. The first is you're probably right about that Indian scene because uh, it's even worse if you go to India and you walk around and you see the people people there. So I, I suppose you're right, even if the people are walking around picking up cigarette butts and they're getting three meals a day, well, it's a tremendous advantage for them. But anyway, uh, it takes... Uh, a a lot of a sort of adjusting of the mind to get used to that kind of idea. You know, my mind just won't won't make the leap sometimes. But I think when I think about it, basically what you say is true. And the second thing I was going to say is about the Japanese transceivers I saw in Rabel. No, they weren't a single valve one. They had about four valves in them, I think, four little valves like what about, about the size of those little uh, of a six V six GT, something like that. I know they probably were a thing that was built later in the war. I've got a vague idea that, that they were out of aeroplanes. They could have been out of aeroplanes. They didn't actually have cases on them, and they could have been out of planes. That's probably what it was. So they were probably a little bit more sophisticated than just the single valve thing. But I do remember well that the English 19 valve, and I remember the first time I ever bought a valve, I was about 12 or something like that, and I wanted to build a one-valve set, and I had to buy a 30 because the circuit I was using was in popular mechanics or popular science or something like that and I had to get a 30 you know how you are then it's got to be the exact one that's in the book precisely and I went and drew the money out of my school savings account where I put a penny in every Wednesday and I had this I had about a pound in it I drew it out and I had to pay 16 bob for this type 30 valve which I had for a number of years until I eventually dropped it but then after a little while I discovered that kids at school had cheap ones, you know, you could get funny old triodes uh, with funny numbers on them and uh, A149s and stuff like that, and I discovered where you could get cheaper ones after a little while, but in the beginning, I fell in that trap and paid the whole 16 bob out of my savings account for that valve.
accommodate. Had a big hassle every night getting into a hotel. The hotels are cheap enough, but I always had this hassle getting a cheap room. They'd always want to give me the, a double room, the dearest room in the house. They'd always swear they didn't have a single room. And in the end, I ended up finding a little hotel. And there was a, 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 the bloke on the desk at midnight was a young German. He could speak very good English, and he didn't mind speaking to me. And he'd always give me a cheap room without any argument. And then uh, I went in there every night for about three nights and he gave me the cheap room and it was very good. And then the next night I went in there, the owner was there and there was a French lady and she'd swear they didn't have any cheap rooms in that hotel. And then the young German had come in and he'd say they did. And then she'd look very embarrassed. Once she actually, I gave her a 50 franc note to pay for the for the room and she was so embarrassed at being caught out about no cheap room she gave me change for a hundred francs that's happened to me a couple of times in France that people have given me too much change they seem to get flustered when you catch them out in something like that anyway they were very strange people I never really got through to them I can't speak French I know a few phrases that helped me along but in, I just bought a very good street map and I found my own way around and I found my way around the, the metro system okay and I didn't have any real problems, but uh, not knowing the language, it can be a bit of a pain, uh, and uh, certainly in a place where the people are tricky and they're not very helpful. But I have discovered that in other places. But if you do happen to know the language and you can, uh, you can uh, 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 tell them what they're doing and what little trick they're up to, well, they leave you alone after that. I can speak a bit of Spanish. I don't have any trouble in Spanish-speaking countries because I can, I can rap with the people and... Uh, and uh, you can sort of break the tension. It's really a tension. I think that's what it amounts to because if you're sort of walking around and you're sort of uh, you're not you're walking around like a like a robe, but the people can see you walking around, but they can't say anything to you, and and uh, they don't know what your business. Is. They always want to know what you're doing there, what your business. Is. And the tension builds up, and then they've got this compulsion to break it somehow. And one of the ways they break it is to is to is to play tricks with you and have a bit of fun with you. And that's one of the way ways they break this tension. Well. Uh, you can get around it if you speak the language. You can tell them to get lost, or or you can deflate them very easily if you can just shoot the right phrase at them. But otherwise, they tend to torment you. That's what it really means. So they torment you because you're foreign. It happens here too. Because when I was a nipper at school, uh, it was during the war, and a lot of refugee kids were coming. I can remember there used to be kids at school in the primary school at Glenfrey State wearing lederhosen. You know these German leather pants and funny clothes and we used to torment hell out of them just because they were wearing these funny clothes and there was nothing they could do about it except punch us in the head if they dared because they couldn't talk to us but uh, I haven't had been in the situation of I travel on a train once from in Mexico from Veracruz to Tapachula it was a very slow train and uh, took it was about I was about a day and a half in this thing and uh, it, it stopped at every siding to let trains full of sugar... It was the sugar-cutting season, and it had to stop to let these trains loaded with sugar cane go through. So it took us a day and a half to get there, and the carriage were full of Mexicans. And But I, I was OK because I could say a few things to them, and I got quite friendly with them, and we cracked jokes and carried on, and uh, that sort of broke the ice, you know. And there, there were kids in the train, little kids about five, and, uh, and two little girls about five, and I was playing games with them, and they were leaning out the looking out the window and uh, and telling me that's a horse and I'd say no, no that's a cow because it's got horns on it and things like that and uh, and then they'd ask me why don't you comb your hair because it looks very untidy and and uh, it was it sort of breaks attention but if I'd been locked up in that carriage for 30 hours and I couldn't have said anything to those people it would have probably would have got a bit heavy I think so anyway that that's a relief if you could 
if you can do that. But anyway, the people in those countries are much more courteous and polite than the French are. I like the Spanish people. They've never done me and done any any harm to me. I've been on ships with Spanish crew, and they're they're not a bad people. But the French, I'm afraid, can be different. But there's one part of France where they're very nice, and that's around about Lourdes on on the Atlantic coast in Brittany, because there are different people there. They're related to the uh, to the Welsh and to the people in Cornwall and they play the bagpipes and they were different people to the French and they know they're different people to the French and they can be very nice there. I went there once on a ship to Lorient and that's where I bought my car actually. I bought it in Lorient for a hundred American dollars at that time. It was one of those Citroen 2 CVs and they didn't treat us too badly in that town. They were a different style of French people so they're not all bad. Paris is particularly bad. I remember going to that Gare Nord station after walking when I want to shower and you go into the public toilet there and it costs you about a dollar fifty just to get into the shower cubicle. You pay about a dollar fifty just for the water and if you want soap and a towel you've got to pay about another dollar fifty and then you've got to tip them as well. It used to be rather heavy, you know, I used to have to put up with it but there's nothing I could do about it. And I remember going to hotels at night, I'd be walking around and I'd, be, I'd go to a hotel at night and, uh, and I'd get a room and... Uh, uh, I'd pay for breakfast, I and mean, when I came down in the morning, they wouldn't give me the breakfast. They'd say I hadn't paid for the breakfast, and uh, and if you wanted to use the bathroom, it was extra. They used to rip another dollar off you to get into the bathroom. They'd ceremoniously unlock the door with a key. And I remember staying in a, a hotel there last September, uh, and I was in the attic because I couldn't get there was the tourist season was on and you couldn't get in, any, in anywhere and I was in this attic and there was no lift in the building I was about six floors up and had a sloping roof I could hardly stand up and I was paying the earth for it and it had a sort of a porthole that looked out over the sloping roof and there was a, a notice in English and French and German behind the door about what to do in case of fire and if there was fire on the stairs you were supposed to keep calm and stick your head out the window and call for help. All I could see out the window was the sky, you know, so it wouldn't have done me any good. I'm glad I've never caught fire on that particular day. Now, having not Paris to that extent, I have to say that it, I like the city. It's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful-looking city, and it's but it sort of wears you out because there's no seat. You can't go into a park and sit down on a seat. There aren't any parks that I can remember, maybe one or two, but you have to pay to get into them. I went into a park where, and I had to pay to get in, and... Uh, about was it about a two and a half francs or something like that, about fifty cents just to get into the park. And you can't there are no seats around in the streets where you can sit down and rest your weary legs. You've got to go and buy coffee and uh, and it cost you by the time you bought coffee for two just to sit down and drink a cup of coffee, it's cost you about an English pound and uh, and uh, there's the great beer rip off. I know I know that business about getting a beer in Paris. You go into some, if you go into a humble little workers' bar or something like that, you can get a beer for about 80 centimes. But you go to some other places, and for, for, for some unknown reason, they rip you off for about three and a half francs. You know, I think they've got a sort of a, a different scale of charges up. If you sit down and have your beer in a, a certain kind of a glass that's a certain kind of beer, and you've got to pay that kind of money. But if you just stand at the bar, it's 80 centimes. But they tend to let you stand at the bar and have your 80 centimes worth but charge you three fifty for it. They just enjoy getting the better of you. They're very nasty people in that way, and uh, they used to annoy the hell out of me. It sort of gave me an incentive to learn French. I must go, and I'm still trying to learn a bit of it, because I know that next time I go back there, I've got to be able to swear at those people. And I, I used to get the same treatment sometimes in Germany, too. If you went into certain bars in Germany, they didn't like English-speaking people in there, and they would charge you, and they'd rip you off for the beer so that it would drive you right out of the place. Again, I can't say that I ever got very friendly treatment in Germany either. I'm afraid 
some parts of Europe that uh, it's sort of dog-eat dog as far as tourists are concerned. Uh, on the other hand, I suppose the, uh, the tourists can be a bit of a pain to the, to the local people. I remember the, when I lived in London and I would, the, the tourist season would come and the, I'd be battling to get a room in a hotel. I'd have a room in a hotel but it'd be booked the next night and I'd, I knew that that day I had to get out and find another. And then you'd see this Boeing 747 flying over and you'd say, oh God, here comes another 483 of them, you know, more competition in about two hours when that's land they'll all be in the in the market looking for a room too and things like that used to worry me, it just gets overcrowded and exasperating and I suppose they see all these these tourist faces sort of peering at them and uh, and they're clogging up the metro and they're clogging up all the facilities and all they can do is rip them off and get some money out of it but, uh, but anyway, it's not a nice experience to go through for the first or second or the third time uh, you know, I've, having been in and out of there a few times, I know how to handle it now, where to go and, and, and where not to go, but I still get caught a few times and it really does annoy me. And I don't know how people live there. I, it's absolutely essential to uh, to learn a bit of French. But I never had that I never had that problem in, in Spain. The people always treated me pretty well in Spain. I, I, I got robbed there once. I went to Spain in my, in my Citroen 2CV and... Uh, and I used to have my, you know, it's a very easy car to open. You could open it with a pocket knife or a tin opener. So I used to have my suitcase chained to the chassis, but I had a little record player there. I was carrying everything around me like a snail. And anyway, uh, I offended some shoe shine people because I wouldn't let them shine my shoes. So to get revenge, they ripped off my record player. But I didn't consider it such a loss. But uh, it was pretty good. They never never treated me badly. And at least in one of the problems in France is eating. You can go into those self-service places in... Uh, in Paris, and you, for about two pounds, you can eat reasonably well. There's something to be thankful for, but it's still pretty dear eating. But you can always eat well in Spain. That's what I really liked about it. You could—they—they uh, uh, they knew how to eat, and the food wasn't too dear. I don't know what the problem is in uh, in France. It always uh, uh, puzzled me because France is a country that's got about the same population as England, but it's got a much greater area of agricultural land available. So you'd think they'd be able to grow plenty of food to feed their population at a more economical price but they can't they, the English have got about one third of the territory but yet their, their food there is a lot cheaper so it just must be that they're very inefficient they only like to work for about half an hour every day and take six months well what happened to me in France was the experience made me have a bit of sympathy with the Gestapo I could understand the Gestapo after being in France I didn't think they were such bad fellows probably I'm wrong about that but anyway I, 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 I really uh, they, did, they did rather annoy me but as for that tipping business well, I hate tipping those people in place like Paris you have to do it if you want a peaceful life but uh, uh, they're so hungry about it that it's really repulsive. But on the other hand, in some places like in the poorer countries, like Mexico and places like that, where the people are really poor, well, that's all they've got the job for is for the tips, and they really do bend over backwards to give you good service without uh, without uh, uh, sort of making it too obvious or um, they're philosophical about it. If they get the tip, they take it, and if they don't get it, they don't throw a tantrum. And they're in the hotel, so there's a lady that comes in and makes your bed, and they're usually very nice. They clean up your room spotlessly, they smile at you, and they've generally got about five kids and an invalid husband to look after at home. I always tip them pretty generously because that's all that's all the income they've got, and they really do give something for it. But I have heard people say, oh, you know, why don't they form a union? But in some of those countries, you can't do that. If you try to form a union, well, they take you down to the, to the creek and they shoot you, you know. 
So some people, in some places, I find it necessary to tip. I use my discretion. In other places, I rather enjoy not giving it to them and watching them get enraged. So uh, you've got to sort of uh, uh, know who needs it and who's just being greedy. They have both. You usually, they used to have both HF and uh, and 500 kilohertz. I don't think they have that anymore. I think they just stick to their HF. And uh, they have low-frequency receivers for receiving beacons, and the beacons relay. Uh, the, the, what they're saying on the control tower and putting out on VHF, they're also putting that out on some beacons so that if the VHF breaks down, breaks down, they can still receive control tower instructions on another frequency and another receiver. So uh, usually you found that aircraft equipment, even the wartime stuff, there were two sides to it. There was, there was low frequency and high frequency and uh, for transmitting well so anyway it doesn't surprise me to, to discover that there are HF antenna tuners and aeroplanes actually there's a lot of aeroplanes and a lot of radio equipment a lot of it must turn up sooner or later and I did read in the papers a couple of weeks ago where the Department of, the, of Defense is saying they're going to re-equip re, re, re the army with radio equipment all the army's radio equipment is going to get pitched out and they're, they're having a spring clean they're re-equipping it all so we can expect a flow of of the goodies onto the market very soon, I think. I'm waiting for that to happen. I don't know what will turn up, but anyway, something a little more modern uh, than what's around at the moment. There are some fairly good things around. There's a transmitter that I've seen about. Uh, it's an English thing, and it's, I think it's to be installed in a Land Rover, and uh, it's, anyway, it's got a big dial on it, and it's channel about 2 megs to 15, and it's a VFO, and it's nicely calibrated. But the thing that's wrong with it it's like a lot of that army equipment is that they make, they design it so that even uh, an idiot can use it and they put the minimum number of knobs on it. So you've got this nice transmitter in a box, but when you go looking for the, uh, for the, for the loading knobs, for the, uh, the uh, uh, capacitor to, to tune your dip and so on, you, you discover it's not there. They've got the, the tank circuits outboard. The tank, the, there's a thing that goes with this transmitter and it's called the aerial, and that's bolted onto another part of the Land Rover, and it's got a box underneath it with a meter stuck on the front of it called churning unit, and half the tank circuit's in there, so it's not in the transmitter, so you've got to find that, or else you've got to make a hanging outboard capacitor onto or something like that, you've got, and there's no room to stick it, stick it in there. It's jammed full of stuff anyway, so that's one of the problems with army equipment, that uh, you've got to find all the bits that go with it to make it work. I, I suppose you could find the antenna tuner and or whatever they call it, if you looked at that. But that's what put me off, I think. I was going to buy one of those at one time. I think it was 40 dB or something like that. But then I discovered that it didn't have enough knobs and there was essential things were missing and that they were in this outboard piece. Uh, anyway, I think I heard... I heard, I heard you, actually, incidentally, I heard your Big Ben clock going a couple of times. I, I think we had that uh, happening another day. So you're picking up the clock, chiming the quarter hour or the half hour. That was the quarter hour. That's what it was chiming. Uh, well, they won't let you pull them, out of the, pull them out of the boxes in the place where I was looking at them. One just happened to be half out. I wasn't able to examine it too closely. But, but the thing that struck me about it was that it looked beautifully, maybe it didn't seem to have enough knobs on it. Uh, now you tell me there's a receiver and everything in it. Uh, and um, uh, But it's FM. Is it entirely FM or has it got AM modulator? I suppose I think if it's got a modulator, it's got to be a low-level modulator or else an outboard modulator. I wasn't sure about that. I'll have to go and have a look at one and uh, and uh, expect it more closely. I might get down to Richmond and see see if they've got any down there. I, anyway, the one I saw this was six months ago was only 40 dB, so that wasn't it wasn't too bad. It was quite cheap for what it was. 
but uh, anyway, it, you know, in their efforts to uh, to uh, uh, make the operation of these things simple, they seem to be doing away with what used to be considered to be essential control. So, uh, you, you know, if you're having the book, I suppose you can look right into it. It's very good to have the book, and uh, but if you're about to buy something and then you've got to take it home and uh, work out what it is afterwards, well, that's sort of pig in a poke and Russian roulette. Anyway, I like the idea of the sort of VFO that was built into it. That looked very good. And the inbuilt calibrator and so on. There was certainly, a, there was certainly 40 dBs worth there. It looked, like, it looked like a good $40 worth to me. But anyway, I didn't have the time, but I bought this thing that I've got here instead, probably because I understood it better. It's more old-fashioned and... and uh, if you could t tell me something more about that C-13, big semi-circular dial on it, it's most attractive. It's got a knob to tune it. And then it's got about one other knob on it or a couple of other knobs it's got a switch. Uh, I, I seem to think, that if we're talking about the same thing, I seem to think the one that I saw didn't even, even have a knob to uh, to alter the gain of the receiver. It did, uh, that's what... That's what uh, Sort of convinced me there was no receiver in it because there was there were no it didn't seem to have any receiver controls. I seem to think the only only control that it did have was a knob to turn the dial and one other switch, and that was about all. I may be wrong about that, but anyway, if if you can uh, uh, describe it to me in, in a little more detail, right now, I'd be interested to hear. The thing is, you've got the book. You were the only one, the only person I know who has got the book. There have been some good things around the football. Unit was selling for about for 20 dB and under thing, which was a, a sort of a, uh, a power amplifier for a man. How's the, um, the the fuel crisis at the moment? It's quite bad, isn't it? There's not, there's not many cars on the road. I think that's quite good. I don't think it's quite bad. Um, I all, think I... yes, that's what I think. I think um, it's quite bad that um, society has come to develop. Uh, around the car, such that they, they depend on it. Well, I have and an entirely different opinion when I'm in a car. When I'm in a car, I change into a different person. But as a pedestrian, I, I find my whole attention is concentrated on, on uh, dodging them, you know. And it's been quite relaxing to walk down the street in the last couple of days and only see three cars in Glenfrey Road. I think a petrol strike is very good as long as you've got petrol yourself. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I'm not and going anywhere. I, I, I'm sort of speaking facetiously because I'm just sitting at home. I haven't got the problems that other people have got. I imagine if you had to get to work or something like that and earn your money and depend on it and feed your family, well, it would be, be quite frightening. But anyway, mm. I'm not in that situation. No. Well, that's right. In fact, um, I really, in fact, I find car driving a car such a pain. And, you know, in terms of uh, in 20 minutes or so, it would take longer on a push bike in the traffic, you know. That's what I notice. Uh, all the kids ride their foot, foot their push bikes on the pavement. When you're down shopping in Glenfrey Road, there's kids zooming up and down their bikes, and they nearly rip your leg open with their pedal. But then I think if I had a kid and he had a bike, I wouldn't want him to ride on the road either, you know. Hmm. There is that. Um, although I've often thought in the city area, it's really ridiculous having... You know, when you're a pedestrian or a cyclist, you think of that, but then I suppose when you're in a car, you think, isn't it nice and comfortable? 
Yeah, well, yeah, yes, you do get you do adopt a different attitude in, in in a car. The last time I drove one was last week. I hired a truck from from Budget, and I shifted a lot of rubbish from this house. And I found myself doing the same old things. You're sitting in the thing, and you get this you get this sort of power complex because all you've got to do to double your speed is push your foot down a bit harder. You forget the poor old pedestrian has got to walk, and you curse him because he's not on the pedestrian crossing. But you forget that it's an effort to walk the hundred yards mm. of the pedestrian crossing, and then up the other the side of the road, you know. Although I must say there's the other argument about pedestrians, which, uh, like, I think it's quite easy to be a pedestrian and not get run over. Oh, yeah, well, I'm the living proof of that. I've been a pedestrian for a long time and I'm still alive. But there are some places where they don't cater for pedestrians. If you go down around the wharf, for example, a new car gets attacked to you and you've got to walk from Flinders Street Extension to the wharf, well, they just don't cater for pedestrians. You're dodging heavy, heavy contraptions on wheels everywhere you go, you know. Now, that thing you're talking about, the, the narrow pavement, I noticed that in... In uh, South American cities, the, uh, the streets have been built for the horse and cart, and when the car came along, they jacked the roadway open by reducing the pavement to about 18 inches in width. That's and all right. the pedestrians are walking up and down there, and, and when it rains, it pours rain, and the gutters on the office buildings don't work. They're all fallen off or blocked up, so consequently you get a sheet of water like Niagara Falls pouring down the front of eight-story office buildings. That's and right. you're on this 18-inch wide footpath underneath it, and the gutters on the streets don't work either, and you've got a, a lake six inches deep, and cars rushing up and down, splashing you, and nobody gives a shit, you know. They just all go flat out, and you just get splattered left and right and from above as well. In fact, there are a few lanes like that even in Melbourne. Well, there's a lot of it everywhere. There's places everywhere where the car's taken over, you know, and it's not safe to walk anymore, but you seem to survive just the same. Uh, some, there have been some times in my life when I've been in these cities where the cars just want to run you down, you know, and I, when I've been walking around at night, I've filled my pockets with rocks, and if I can get a shot at them, well, I have. I mean, I've rushed up a side street, but I always had my escape route clear, you know, but I never That's hit them right. because it's very hard to hit a moving target like that, but I feel so angry that I want to do it, you know. That's right. In fact, you end up in feuds like that when you ride a push bike these days because the drivers think that you shouldn't be on the road. And if you ride on the pavement, the police book you for riding on the Channel 7 in Dorcas That's Street. right. And I worked there for about two years and I was just sort of, I was living in a, I was living in a thing which you would, these days you would call it a commune, but then it was called a hostel and it was in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy on the corner of King William Street. Oh. The Divine Life Mission's in there now anyway, but in those days it, it was used to be a university hostel and then they gave it away and it used to be a, a sort of a place where, where, where you lived. Anyway, I lived there and I worked at this place and I was just doing a sort of an ordinary, I was, a, I was just wiring switches and things together when I started there and then I got to be chief of the uh, amplifier production department but in those days when I got there, Mr. The buyer, buyer himself had gone bankrupt, yeah. he, he went to Surface Paradise and, and, ran, and started to run a motel, he didn't go that bankrupt and they had the receivers in and then eventually Roller took it over, when, well when Roller took it over they tried to introduce sort of 
Henry Ford production method. Before that, all the amplifiers were were uh, sort of wired up by one person who knew how to wire. But when Roller got hold of it, they got production lines of, of sort of Greek ladies and Italian ladies there who was, were supposed to wire. It used to drive me bonkers because I was supposed to get them to do the same quality wiring that sort of professional wires had been doing. It was really a false economy. It mm. drove me out of the place in the end. But we used to have a bit of fun there. We used to get, they used to have those TTC capacitors that were in an aluminium tube and with rubber bungs in the end. We used to take them out and wire up those uh, uh, penny feet, you know, those firecrackers, what do they call them? Uh, penny bungs. The ones with a whole bunch. They were about an inch long. We used to put them in there with a bit of fuse wire and then wire them across the mains, sort of innocent looking, and then give them into the tester pub. And when they plugged them in, they all went off, you know, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, there used to be a bloke called Jim Dryden who was a store man, and that was in the early days of TV, and all the TV personalities had buyer 66s and buyer 77s to hear themselves sing and to practice in. They had faults, and he'd pretend he didn't know who they were, and Graham Kennedy and this one, that one had come in, and uh, and he used to he used to get his kicks by annoying them by pretending not to recognise them. But uh, and there used to be a bloke there called Graham Thirkle, spelled T-H-I-R-K, and he was in the test department and he now runs some kind of, runs some kind of an electronic business. Uh, I think it's around Murrumbina or somewhere, I'm not hmm. sure. Anyway, if you really wanted to get any bits for it, he'd be the black to ring up. He'd know where they all are, I would think. Hmm, that's very interesting. Yeah, because actually, were they still making the old grey bars when you worked there or were they the silver ones? No, they only made the 66, the 77, and then I think they made a stereo one they called it the 88 or something. But mm. they were, it was a fairly limited range they were making. And I think they did have a little one that was like a, sh- a butter box or a shoe box, but that had gone out of production before I got there. Mm. Oh, yeah, because um, Dave and I have 77 Mark 1s, if you remember the thing. Yeah, I remember them. All cast aluminium deck and everything. Yeah. In fact, if you walked into my shack, you'd see three of them. Have you got the whole thing? Have you got the tape deck or have you got the amplifiers too? I've got the tape deck with the amplifiers in a sort of black case, so it oh, stands yeah, at a 45 right, yeah. degree angle. Yeah. It had quite a good setup there. The, the biggest part of it was the machine shop. You know, the mechanical side of it was, was took up a lot more room in that factory than the than the wiring and testing side of it. It had a huge machine shop. They used to turn all that stuff up themselves. Mm. Yeah, anyway, I, I suppose somebody in Japan makes a better one cheaper now. You'll never get that thing again in Australia. That's right, because nowadays if you tried to produce a thing like that, you'd probably go bankrupt before you... Well, that's exactly what they did, yes. I think they, they did go back. It was really stupid. The bloke who was, uh, who was the manager down there and who introduced these Henry Ford methods, well, he got the axe in the end because he bugged everything up and he ended up be, being executive in charge of the, the canteen at Roller or something. I'm trying to do something. I'm moving around the room. I'm trying to get away from my transistor radio, but the further away I get, the worse it gets. I, I think I might go to bed, actually, because this is, this is sort of fouling up the whole contact with feedback. Uh, I'll leave you to get on with it, and I'll, I'll have to get myself some, some kind of an FM receiver rigged up, I think. Uh, you need to invest in a pair of, uh, pair of cheap headphones. Yeah, that's actually. all I need. All I, that wouldn't be too hard. Actually, I, no, I had the microphone jam right into the speaker of the transistor, and it didn't give as much feedback as I would have I imagined. Yeah, oh, I, I, I better go to bed, I think. Uh, but anyway, if you're on the air tomorrow, for example, are you working tomorrow? 
I'm working tomorrow, unfortunately. You are, are you, Dave? I saw on the ABC telly tonight, they they closed down at 10. They said they were letting everyone go home on the tram or something. Oh, yes. Mm. Anyway, uh, if if you're around tomorrow on 160, I might have a word with you. But uh, but this crossband business will have to be improved, I think, because we can't go on all night with with sort of screeches and feedback. So I'll say goodnight to everybody, and and I'll pull out of it now and go to bed then. Okay, okay good night, Jack. Good night. Anyway, with that remark, I shall leave you until next time. It's been a, a very interesting contact. It's very good, actually, to have this radio.